Welcome to the Wisdom Factory Podcast. I'm Preston Nieves, Vice President of the Wisdom Factory. In today's episode, we will be discussing the ideas of romanticism, emphasizing emotion and individualism. The Romantic era was a response to the Enlightenment, providing an alternative to Enlightenment norms and its emphasis on scientific rationalization, culture, and human events. The debate between the values of the Enlightenment era and those of Romanticism go on until this day and have major philosophical implications for how humanity views the world. While both offer compelling insights, we may very well find that there is a lot of wisdom contained in both. Good evening, everybody. We have, uh, I'm here with Preston Nevis, Ian McCurley, and I am Jordan Villanueva. And today we have a great podcast in store for you. We're going to be talking about the Romanticism era. Um, now, right off the back, I have a question that I want to ask both of you guys. Do we have any romantics in the room? Any self-described romantics? Are we... How are we feeling about this? Preston, no, I'm, you're an Enlightenment guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm an Enlightenment guy all the way. That I'm definitely a big fan of, of fact and reason, especially when it comes to understanding uh, just like the world around us and, and distinguishing truth from falsehood. Because like one of the things I do want to bring up is is how you know sometimes things that are maybe not 100% objective can still have value. Like especially we're talking about fiction, but but generally speaking, like when it comes to my understanding of the world and the way it works, I'm I'm definitely an Enlightenment kind of guy, and I believe in things like the scientific method and and, and that objectivity is going to be a better way to, to achieve you know something that that complete understanding. Well, see, so what I, I obviously when I I get the initial reaction when you look into romanticism and it talks about suspending reason or it talks about a reaction to objectivity and the scientific method, obviously in the 21st century, it's going to put you off. You're going to be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. a little bit of both going all, all on. Of, all of the progress that we've had, I mean, you look around you and it's almost ridiculous and absurd to sort of discount reason and logic because it's gotten us so far. But that being said, if you sort of approach it with an open mind, you start to see the value of the romantic era movement. And so, I mean, if you get past that initial rejection of this movement, you can see that they made a lot of points, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, um, individual freedom or autonomy or it's imagination or it's the concept of nature or this consumerist, uh, this consumerist movement out there that could be taken away from what it means to be human. And so personally, I would consider myself an enlightened romantic or at least that's my goal, because I do see the value in positive, like in in emotionality, you know, Mm -hmm. like being able to, I mean, humans have reason and we have emotion and those two seem to be at odds with each other or at least opposed to each other, but very connected, like, like they make up what it means to be human. Those two are very strong factors on what it means to be human. And so obviously you want to be proficient in both. Right. You want to be able to use your emotions because that's how you make sense of the world or one of the ways. Uh, And I think that, you know, experiencing the full breadth and depth of emotions that are available to humans and, and sort of understanding them will enrich your experience here on Earth. Well, I think it's also life. very important to think about how we're applying some of these concepts because three things that come to mind are, you know, one question, I guess would be a better way to phrase it, 
is when we're trying to when we're talking about how we should understand the world and whether you know emotion can lead to that understanding the balance between logic and emotion uh, i definitely think it, it depends on what we're applying it to are we trying to find fact are we trying to be make propaganda and be persuasive or are we trying to entertain ourselves well because those those are all three different things and i think which you know which of these two approaches is better um really depends on that because i think i'm 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 a, I'm, I'm a big fan of like objective logic when it comes to finding fact like if we're talking about you know what is and what isn't what's true and what's not some of those empirical things you know that's where i believe that we need to keep emotion out of it but where i think people start seeing more value in emotion and one of the reasons why this romantic era was so influential was because when you're trying to persuade somebody Right, if it's like propaganda, you're trying to persuade someone to get on board, or or maybe it's not even a real world objective at all. Maybe it's just you know you're entertaining people, or you're trying to express your creativity. Um, that that's where these more subjective aspects and emotion-driven aspects start to have a lot more value. See, I don't believe that you can look at <clears throat> at romantic principles and sort of say that well, we're going to judge which era or which philosophy is best by how it perceives the world or how it understands the world because romanticism isn't really about understanding it's about mm. finding meaning yes and when you're trying to find meaning it's very hard to use objective criteria and logic to do that because it just simply doesn't work you know um, romanticism to me is more about like you have you know John Doe who's out there waking up at nine o'clock going to work getting his money coming home he's probably got about an hour or two to watch TV and then he's got to go to sleep and he's got to go back to work and it's just 25 years of this this existence uh, you know this this life of desperation you know because he can't really he, he's just he's not really experiencing he doesn't know what life's about you know like the romantics would say that well there's so much to life in order like to just constrain yourself to this capitalistic materialistic way is damning your soul it's damning your your individuality because you're just like everyone else and you're not doing anything that sort of explores your individuality um, and so th to me that's what romanticism is about it's not about how it's not about progress it's not about at all so you can't look at it's not you can't look at it as opposed to logic and reason um, because it's basically about finding meaning where you reach the limits of reason Right. So you're, but you, guess, you, have, guess, you have exhausted. Well, your, I, I, I agree you have with exhausted that. your understanding. I, I agree with that. But what I'm, still a lot of questions. But what I was saying, what I was saying, what I was saying earlier still under, uh, still stands because I, I definitely understand that in the sense that you may have certain areas where reason is not applicable or where the objective is not to find truth. But the thing right. is, is that when you're talking about the limits of reason, sometimes the limits of reason is as simple as we just don't know something. And that I think it's really dangerous to get into this idea of using principles that are not objective um, or, or if you are using, or, or at least like not using logic and objectivity to describe things that we don't know, because it could be that there is an objective truth out there, or that it can be explained rationally, but we just don't know it. We just science has not advanced to that point, yeah, and that what true. happens is that if we start making up myths and these you know ideas to explain where the limits of reason are, just because it's the limits of reason, uh, it, when we're talking about things that actually directly relate to our understanding of the the real world and the material world and the tangible world and that kind of stuff it, it can get dangerous but I, I what I will say though is I, I do still understand where you're coming from just because that sometimes 
finding objective truth is not the the only objective that you know what you're talking about about the romantic era seeing that there's more to human existence than just these patterns that we're in that you know one of the reasons why i bring up entertainment is because that creative expression is something that we value as human beings um and i think for me what's really important i i think it's, it's more than just being completely fact driven or completely um creativity dri driven is making sure that i'm able to understand the distinction between the two you know that that what it is is that i'm completely fine going off on some of these abstract things that are completely fictional, you know, as long as I'm understanding that that's the case and I'm able to maintain that awareness. What I don't like is this concept of, you know, if I'm doing something where, where there's like a risk that maybe I'm deluding myself or that I'm hiding from reality. That's what I try my best to avoid. Well, to me, yeah. So, you know, when I look at the whole of humanity, right, you got to ask yourself, and this isn't a quantifiable, this isn't a quantifiable thing. But who is living a happy life? Who is living a good life subjectively? Like who out there is happy and just doing the things that give them meaning and that fulfills them? And I think you can't use <laughs> objective criteria to prescribe a perfect way of life. I mean, you can try, but everyone is so different that you're going to fail at the end of the day. That's why I think the romantic idea of looking at things from an individual level and from an emotional level um, and from a meaning level, is more direct to, to good living. It, well, I, I, I definitely... That, when you talk about entertainment, I think that comes to this <clears> point, you know, because that's a huge component of good living, yeah. is the entertainment component. You obviously have to know how to live your life. But there are a lot of reasonable people, you know, when you, when you think about people with high intellect, you know, they're not necessarily the most happy, you know, like some of the most, what is it, like the most happiest people are those that are, you know, I don't want to say less intelligent, but I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know. We'd have to find the statistics on that. Yeah, I've, I've heard but, something similar that sometimes people who live a slower paced mm -hmm. life, <clears throat> like basically, well, I, I think it's important not to conflate just wealth and power and success with intelligence, because I think yeah. like, what, what I have heard it, it, that described as it wasn't so much in the context of intelligence, so much as it was that like people, people who make above a certain income, I think it's like 80 grand or something, or people yeah. who get into positions of power. Like basically if you're a CEO if you're, or if you're a president of the United States or if you're governor of the state or something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're happier. You're more successful. You've achieved right. more in life than most people have, you know, and that, that's definitely praiseworthy, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're happy. That there are some people who live some pretty ordinary lives that, you know, we wouldn't count as remarkable from an outside perspective. Mm -hmm. But they're very happy because they found an experience that really sings well, to what they believe life should mean. And that, you know, they might not have the power, they might not have the wealth, they might not have some of the things that we associate with a good life. But they, they have happiness, they have something that means more to them than those things. And I mean, like, if you want uh, to demonstrate and illustrate a case where reason would be opposed to sort of a more romantic ideal of life, I mean, whenever humans are experiencing like what the romantics would call sublime moments, like those moments in life that are just very meaningful, very powerful, they give you these positive emotions, whether they're good or well, generally we'd like them to be good, but they're very risky and they're unreasonable in a lot of ways. Like, like you can think of like, uh, like mountain biking down a, down, a, down a slope mountain. I mean, it's very dangerous. There's a lot of ways that you might, you know, get hurt. Or like going into outer space, you know, like, you know, if, if you know reasonably that if you're one of the first ones and you know you're going to die, you know, you're, you're, you're one of those test subjects, like the people who are like test pilots, they know those first ones are going to die. There's an element of 
of, I think, romantic idealism that says, well, I'm a part of something bigger, you know, that I'm a part of this. This is this gives my life meaning. Well, actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that that is always um, romantic. Because remember how earlier I was talking about that sometimes there's things that we just don't understand. There's actually two philosophies, two worldviews that would sort of refute what you're saying. Um, the first is, um, and I think we had talked about this a little bit earlier, um, people who are like physicalists or materialists. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second are people who are very strong believers in God. So allow me to explain. So I'll kind of, I'll go actually with that, the last one first because I'm a Christian myself. So some of these activities that we do that might not have a explanation that is rational based on what is known of the material world only can make more sense if you believe in the supernatural and you consider that to be an objective part of your life. Somebody who doesn't believe in God might not consider that to be an objective part of their life. But for me, I believe that we have souls. I believe that we're given a higher purpose. Um, the other are all more in line with romanticism. No, but, 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 but what, I was saying, what I was saying though is that just the thing is, is that we just because we get to the it's earlier how I was talking uh, like it's like how I was talking about earlier. Just because we like get to the limits of reason, that doesn't necessarily mean that something does or doesn't exist. It just means we might not understand that. Um, but the other thing that could potentially refute that is actually quite the opposite. People who are physicalists or materialists, and if you believe that there is nothing more than just the brain, there are biological processes that could explain that theoretically. That there are biological processes that can and do happen. Um, inside of one's mind that may make somebody want to do things that on the surface level are irrational and seem kind of, you know, just, just based on this little romantic idea, but when you really break it down, it's because there's just a certain chemicals that go off in the mind when, when those things occur, and that there is an objective reason why people do it in the scientific sense, in the sense of scientific well, objectivity. Well, the first one you mentioned really doesn't refute romanticism because that's generally in line with it, like, the idea that your soul would be a motivation for action is more of a romantic idea than anything. That's basically the core of a lot of the romantic philosophers' ideas. Well, like, I mean, you, to, to add, you know, on the second point, Preston, when you're talking about, well, there's, like, if someone has a motivation for action, that that motivation is going to take place because they're going to make this calculation in their head. It's basically, it comes down to neurological chemicals yeah. and stuff like that. But I would say it's the romantic idea that's the emphasis that's the impetus for these chemical reactions because you sort of you will your will is in line with this grand idea that is irrational you know it's the height of irrationality but usually when you make irrational decisions sometimes they can pay off for you through experience you know uh, that's like taking risk you know you, you, you look at something rationally and there's an there's a 80% chance that you're going to fail or 80% chance that you're going to fall flat and get embarrassed but there's that 20% chance and you're gonna make that leap you know, this well, leap of irrationality. Fichte said that initial, that initial like, uh, John Gottlieb Fichte said, like, basically that initial risk was your eye asserting itself, and it was necessary to take those kind of leaps of faith, yeah. even to establish yourself as a person. Right. Like, he was, like, he's one of the idealists who basically... So that, so that is an idealistic, yeah. an, an idealistic uh, concept. Yeah, so, so well, that, that's... Like, but hold on, person. So, so what, what I'm saying is... Part of that is participation in, in God. Yeah. Like, when Christians participate in God, like, there's usually this idea of an objective consciousness that's part of what God constitutes. Mm -hmm. It's like, so, the way that affects us is usually thought of as, like, an idealist or, like, a romantic method of motivation that's not always explainable because it is something that, like, the idea of God is inherently inaccessible. So, right? so what, to me, what it comes down to is it's your will, right? So, your will, your agent of action. It's basically your will is a combination of what you desire and what you're going and what you, the judgment that you've made that you're going to do is actually carrying out that action. And that will 
is directed towards a romantic ideal. It's directed toward idealism or it's directed towards an irrational act. And that, to me, is, okay, then once you will that, that's going to obviously affect your brain chemistry. Yeah. And there's going to be you know, some brain chemicals going on. But I would say that it's a priori that that is what's going on, that you're willing something that is irrational. But I think we're getting off topic. Well, not, we're not getting off, definitely not getting off topic. But um, we need to give a little bit of background on the Romantic era, what the movement is. Because, I mean, we, we all have a good general sense about what it is. Mm -hmm. But our listeners may need to refresh their memories about what Romanticism really is. Um, so a couple of uh, information, a little, a little bit of background about it. Is, romanticism so, was when people started having romance again. They loved. They, everyone yes. fell in love with each other. Yep, everyone fell in love with each 1950s, other. 1950s, all those movies. It, it, <laughs> the racism started in 1180. No, I'm just kidding. No, the, forget those last two sentences. The racism started in 1750, about that area, and it lasted for 100 years to about halfway through the 19th century. Um, and basically, what this was was it was a reaction to the birth of the modern world, right? So this world that we take for granted. We were transforming from an agrarian society to a capitalist, industrialized, urbanized, and secular society, and a consumerist society. And that transformation um, led to a lot of disruptions in society because everything started to be so logical. Everything started to be so sterile, so systematic, so bureaucratic. Um, and it just people longed for the days when there was more creativity in the world or there was more freedom like you weren't dictated by a dogma like the world became dogmatic if you wanted to think a certain way it had to conform to a philosophy or if you wanted to live a certain way and it was outside of the social norms you were ostracized um it's basically you know you had your now the previous era gave you your individual rights and what the romanticism was kind of about was okay so now what are you going to do with these rights well romanticism itself was the artistic side of a bigger movement it was it was poems and paintings Right. It's usually connected to like the German idealist movement in philosophy from like basically from Descartes it went to Kant, Fichte, Schilling, and then uh, ended with Hegel as kind of the last of the German idealists. What are some of those uh, ideas from these idealists that are going to be central to So they, they basically in the Enlightenment you had a lot of people saying that everything was based in materialism, like everything right. could be explained by material phenomenon. Kant uh, use the questions asked by Descartes about our perception to bring us back into a world where even though the scientists were starting up, we had a place for the soul again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, philosophers were removing the idea of this like dualism and the soul, like dualism being that there's two substances, matter and God, or matter and something else. Uh, for Kant, it was reason. For Fichte, it was God, I think. And they're translating that in idealism into this idea that like, right. Our perceptions affect the world more than we think. Or we are not just mm -hmm. mirrors for the world. We have a power in the world yeah. based on our minds. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I, what you're talking about, um, we're going to get to, because I think that has a lot to do with imagination. Because when they talked about imagination, they didn't mean how we look at it today. Like you're a five-year-old and you're in a box. You know, I'm sorry to use this SpongeBob example. <laughs> you're in this box and you're just... We're in a box. You're imagining this world. Like you're recreating the world in your head. Um, that is imagination, but when they talked about imagination, it was about the way you perceive the world. It's about the way you observe the world. Like the way that there's, okay, so there's the real world out there, right? And you're interacting with these objects, but the way you interpret that interaction, you could apply your imagination to it. That's basically what, what they mean by imagination. And when you look at it like that, I mean, it basically transforms how, you, how one calibrates themselves in reality. 
because you have the power to use your imagination to ordain the world or, or ordain your experience in any way that you want. Well, it becomes like you're participating in something outside of just matter energy. Exactly. So like an empiricist would say, well, this is how, this is what this object is. This is who you are. This is how you go. This is how you should perceive it. Whereas, you know, there's, there's, there's little creativity, little imagination there. Whereas, I mean, obviously you have to have some rationality about the way you're going to perceive well, the to world. A romantic, you, can't, you can't say a shoe is a sock. You know, to a romantic, the but, object is only important for how it relates to you. Only important for like what it means. On a exactly. Level. Like, for instance, you could say, like, if you have a shoe in your closet, right? You can look at this shoe from a functional, pragmatic point of view and say, oh, this is, this is a shoe. I got this shoe for Christmas. Uh, I'm going to wear it until it wears out, then I'm going to throw it away. Or you can sort of be romantic about it and use your imagination to say, this shoe is a shoe that my mom gave me. I wonder where she was when she was at the store, how she was picking it out, how she was thinking about me. It's called sentimentality. And, yeah, sentimentality. And applying your sentimentality to the way that you're interacting with this shoe. And so looking at the shoe that like, says, wow, this shoe has a lot of value because my mom gave me this shoe and she's not here right now. And this sort of gives me a connection to her. And, you know, no matter how worn out this shoe gets, I'm never going to lose it because my mother gave it to me. So you oppose those two versions of observing reality. And you see that imagination could be quite powerful, if not, if a little bit excessive, which that is an, a romantic ideal is eccentricity, because I would say that is a little bit excessive, not totally. But, you know, it's just but but it, there is some validity to it. I mean, if you look at things in, in that way. Um, so some other things that they were, I have a list of the, uh, the Romantic Era movement. And so what were some of the things that they were reacting to? Because obviously this had just came about right after the Enlightenment, which, you know, it was a great era. We had the Enlightenment podcast uh, and we talked about it. And it was, it, it, it was to me, I'm an Enlightenment guy. And that's why it's, it's kind of interesting to have this conversation because just they were on to things. And a lot of these things that I'm about to list for you guys, you're going to be like, yeah, that's the way to go. You know, but this is what the romantics are rebelling against. Um, and there's about nine of these or, or a little bit more. So scientific observation, right? Logic and reason, pragmatism, universal experience, elegance and refinement, order, rules, tradition, moderation and restraint, virtue and morality, stability and harmony, social hierarchy, aristocratic rule, uh, and the idea that man exist that nature is subservient to man and that man should conquer nature so a lot of those ideas i mean logic and reason scientific observation pragmatism i mean in the 21st century we can see that enlightenment won enlightenment won the battle of ideas and generally in the 21st century society the majority of society is going to live by order and tradition by restraint by moderation they're going to want stability you know scientific observation, all these are good things. So it's interesting to see, Preston, that you had this movement that actually criticized these ideas, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so basically, so they, re they re didn't reject these principles altogether, but they just put them in their place. Uh, and, they, and they gave new ones that are more sort of uh, their core principles that they, that they believed were more real. Uh, and that was imagination, right, uh, which we just talked about, nature, like the quality of nature, that nature is actually stronger and more powerful than man, and nature will conquer man, um, and the individual. So, you know, looking within.
trying to find truth within. Um, so we talked about imagination a little bit. Uh, so we might as well move to the next one, which is, um, oh, uh, which is nature. So the romantics believe that nature had a healing power to it, a healing quality. It was just something about the way that nature, because nature is reality manifested towards itself. It's all of the, the natural laws of the universe, right, developed to the present moment. Like it's untampered with. It, there is no outside will other than the will of the universe or the will of God that has acted upon this upon nature, right? So humans can destroy nature. Nature can destroy itself, but that's nature destroying itself. That's nature just being itself. But it's to, they, they looked at it as clean, untampered with, you know. And when you get when you mix yourself in with nature, it's like there's a there's a recalibration that you have with the universe. Right. And that's, you know, that's one of the uh, romantic ideas, um, but also that um, it was a refuge. So now in this day and age, you've got people living in urban environments, people are living in cities, people are living in these crowded areas. They're working day and night in these factories and there's all this smoke and there's all the air this is toxic. It's always bright and it's never been like this before anywhere. Exactly, and and there's lights now, so you go outside, you can't even see the stars. Well, and I think it's, it's interesting too. Not not only the idea of rebelling against progress, but what you have diarrhea and it's, you work eighteen hours a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not, not yeah. only not only rebelling against progress, but also what does progress mean? What does a good life mean? Because this is actually something that we talked about in one of my classes uh, regarding um, development economics, and as well as the attitude of different cultures towards <laughs> economic development. Because one, one of the things that's actually really interesting is how, so in the West we have this idea um, that we've pursued, um, or it's usually referred to as development economics, and it's the idea that we want to help you know, disadvantaged countries develop, we want to give them, uh, well, we say better standard of living, a lot of times it, it ends up more power, or both, usually it's both, but sometimes it's more of an emphasis on the power of that country relative to Western countries and anything else, but that, that's like another discussion. But the thing is, is that entailed in that is a certain assumption, and that assumption is that development is good and it's something that everybody can achieve. One of the things that we discussed in my uh, Politics of Modern Southeast Asia class, as well as um, in history, is how there's certain religions that don't see it necessarily like that. Like I know Jainism has a very a large emphasis on the value of nature, and to a lesser extent, like, there's some Hindus and some Buddhists who have something similar. And how this and Shinto, animist really, and that this this idea of development, this idea of oh, we need more factories, oh, we need more wealth, oh, we need to be like the West, or if not like the West, at least as powerful as the West. We need to take this and that back. We need to be modern. Those are things that are not as universal as Western countries that feel bad for their colonial past might like to think and that there's some cultures that actually have an idea that doesn't emphasize development or at least what we would think of as development nearly as much as, as some other countries like do. all the native american religions yes yeah. yeah and that was uh what you saw in the romantic era and this falls under the head of nature because they actually viewed other civilizations that were outside of western uh, modernity as a part of nature so they looked at asian cultures they looked at african cultures uh, what we would say today, cultures that have escaped globalization, you know, mm. and they look to them and they looked at these rich traditions where there's all these colors, like where this individuality is so different from the West, where everything is becoming con uh, conformed and uniformed in one way. And they saw beauty in that. So there was two sort of extra principles that went under nature and it was the idea of the primitive man 
or where man it was before uh, modernity. And they looked at, you know, their idea was the farmer, right? Which, this is where I start to get off the track with these romantics, right? That they looked at the farmer as the ideal person, like the person who has it figured out because they're out there in nature, they're actually tending to their flock, they're actually growing these crops, they're, you know, they have to keep track of the, the seasons you know, because this is affecting their livelihood. They're as in tune with nature as pretty much anybody in these societies. Um, so they put them up there. Now, now, you would have to ask yourself, okay, so you have, like, look at farmers today, right? Do you guys think that farmers have any more sense of understanding of reality or that they're living a better life in a better way than us city folk? Oh, a lot of them, most farmers are professionals who work for large corporations and are college-educated agriculture people. Mm -hmm. They run machines and shit. Well, I don't think those would be the farmers that we're talking about. We're but talking I, about I think even if we are, because this is, this, is, this is one of the things that um, is brought up a lot on a, a personal favorite YouTube channel of mine called uh, Isaac Arthur. It's a science futurism channel. But one of the things he was talking about is that, uh, what, what does it mean to be natural? Because when we're talking about like science and technology, one of the first criticisms that people will have of things is that, oh, it's not natural, right? It could be food, it could be transhumanism, it could be artificial intelligence, and all sorts of, oh, it's not natural, right? But the thing is that when you really think about what that means, like, you know, is this natural? There's a pretty good argument to be made that we, we stopped really being natural when we started farming. That a truly natural existence actually would be more along the lines of a hunter-gatherer existence. Because farming is when we started using tools to Not change the tools. land. It wasn't tools. It was anthropogenic materials. Well, that's what I was going to mention. There was more than one thing. It was it was that, you know, like select, and there's a lot of selective breeding of, of plants and animals. And then the use of tools to change the land specifically. We had tools beforehand. That hand, but like this, this idea that we're going to change the way the land is to make it more suitable for growing mm -hmm. crops. That we're going to selectively breed our crops to make plants that produce more. That those are things that don't necessarily happen that way in nature. I mean, yeah, you have evolution and you have, you know, the Darwinism, but this idea that there's this creature who just kind of comes in and, and changes things the way that he wants it to be and, and makes something new. You know, farms really are not natural if you want to use natural in a very strict sense. In, 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 the, in the modern sense, Preston, I think when we talk about naturalness, we're talking about the way that human beings have been living for thousands of years. So, yeah, you could, you could make the argument that farming has unnatural aspects and components to it, but human beings have been farming and living, you know, in an agrarian lifestyle for, I mean, how long before industrialization? Like it's been basically the state, like most humans on earth live in this, in this sort of environment for the longest amount of time. And it was just a way of life that was accepted. It was like, mm -hmm. a, it just pervaded human society. But the whole, just, the whole point had its of, own set of values. The whole point of that is just this idea that looks, so you know, it's, the, I, it's, it's I see that. It's I see tradition. that. Yeah, so it's, it's a tradition. A, but it's, a, lot of, a lot of these newer things are just extensions of that is really what it is. And when you're talking about natural, it, essentially, if you use natural in a strict sense, it's mm -hmm. more about what is nature like when it's unaltered. Right. That, you know, when you're talking, things that are not natural are, are you know, at, at least in, in the way I view it. You know, things where, where man starts altering nature and these more recent innovations are just, you know, those are just extensions of that. Is that we're doing it more, we're doing it in, so new, we're doing it in new ways. Just for, for clarification, if someone brought seeds from India and brought them to France and planted them and grew them and harvested them and ate them, would that be natural or would it be unnatural because this they brought these seeds from a different environment and they're sort of artificially... Uh, terraforming their their crops with this un, un you know with this seed from another foreign land. 
Would that be unnatural? Or would that still be natural? What was their intent behind it? Did they bring the seed on purpose, or was it stuck to their boots? That's come on. They brought it. No, there is. There they is. Brought it well, that's them. what I'm saying. The difference might yeah. be like if yeah. you have this conscious intention when you change things. Like if you're if you're like a, a bird that just yeah. flies with seed stuck to it, right. and you change the environment on accident, or you're a beaver that does it by rote, mm-hmm. you're natural. But if you're thinking about what you can do, you have that responsibility. Suddenly, you're, you're a human. So what you do is a human act. So you're yeah. saying that that is that under you guys' definition would be unnatural, uh, bringing in sort of seeds from India and planting them in France okay, consciously. Yeah. That well, that's a form of uh, like that changes how the seeds work. Even those seeds won't be the same in a few decades of living in France. Because basically, what it is, if it, it changes just, how they, if it just, if well, it just, if okay. it just gets stuck to you, like you're, you're right. you it. It's not. You're making. So uh, what? What you guys are talking about? What you guys are talking about is absolute nature. Right, mm-hmm. and I think that obviously, um, in romantic idea, they're not talking about an absolute nature. Uh, well, they're, 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 they're talking they're, about being closer to the yeah, same. Close, nature. Yeah. that's what I'm saying. So you look at nature is on a spectrum, right? And you go to a, a Silicon Valley um, computer room. That's obviously on the a very artificial environment. What, right? if, what about the plastic ficus? A plastic ficus is it's. I would say it's farther away from an artificial environment. You know, it's still artificial, but it's not sort of living in a factory, right? It's not sort of. It, it's it's at least trying to repli- replicate nature, and a person's going to see that and they're going to experience it like they're in nature. But it's definitely not nature. So, like I said, so there's this spectrum, right? There's this line, and on the very left, there's absolute nature, and on the very right, there's ap- there's absolute um, artificial ar- artificiality. And I think that what they're talking about is the movement towards artificiality and trying to move back, you know, the other way because society is progressing towards artificiality. They're trying to progress the other way. But in some, in some ways, uh, there, there's a little bit of a contradiction with some of the other principles there because moving more towards nature doesn't necessarily mean moving away towards logic and reason and objectivity because you can actually make the argument that it's quite the opposite that logic reason and objectivity are natural characteristics that man has as such that's what the enlightenment did but they made the argument that the effects of that logic and reason were science mm-hmm. yeah and it, like concretely so, science was moving us away from nature yeah, yeah. do y'all know what a garden hermit is no what's it's a the most romantic profession ever uh rich people in the 18th and 19th centuries in britain and the states would build these grottos like caves basically or uh, teepees or huts and I'd hire a guy to just live in there, talk to no one, or maybe give advice on gardening. He just he wouldn't be able to cut his hair or grow his toenails. Mm-hmm. Cut his hair or his toenails. So this he was a professional hermit. So this profession, <laughs> this this professional hermit is probably more in tune with nature than we are. But the question I'm trying to ask is like, so what? How, why does that give him advantages over me? He was hired to be an example of the sublime. I don't know if he was happy. He was probably just some drunk. He was this example of this mm-hmm. sublime person who just lived like a druid in nature. He'd pretend right. to be a druid. Yeah. It was a really weird way to embrace it, but I guess these people's estates were surrounded by factories. Do you now. think do you think he's do you think he's more happy than your average city dweller? At that time he was paid to do nothing while they were all working to death, so So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think but then maybe that's what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I would think that maybe that's it comes down to Happiness. Well, maybe. I think I think a lot of or, or just do, do you think his life has more meaning? Maybe that's that's the word because happiness probably isn't the word because, like you said, Ian, there's also meaning through suffering, uh, which is just as valid. So I, maybe we should use the term meaning, right, as 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 a a good standard for who is living the better life, the city dweller or the farmer, and who has more meaning in their life? Is it the farmer because they're more connected? 
to nature and so that gives their life more meaning because they're a part of this universal law and this universal way of the world or is it the person who's connected to this super reasonable super practical world where everything is artificial i mean i think we find meaning in changing our nature yeah i do too i do too and that's why on this particular romantics they always thought they would get all this meaning from like reaching back to their nature they thought they lost and none of them were probably living in a in a cave you know i feel like all these people were in well there's there's some fallacy fallacy we assume like it's like the golden age fallacy where we assume things were better in the past (laughs) and it wasn't true that (laughs) yeah and that's the thing is that you know that, that even though there may have been certain aspects of a more natural existence that we do like, that it, it, at the same time there were there were a lot of challenges, you know, then that we don't face now. And like really, when you think about why did we start creating technology to begin with? Why, well, you know, it was because of the fact that life man, sucked. Man, yeah, life sucked. Man was not well. Man was not very well. Point. He was not very well suited mm-hmm. or adapted to surviving in a purely natural environment. His advantage is not claws or teeth or, or anything like that. It was intellect. And that our ability to create technology, our ability to innovate, our, our ability, ability to, to organize. To organize, those were things that made us able to survive. That's what prevented humans from becoming extinct. Right. I, I think when you're talking with romanticism, what I really see it as You're saying that they went too far with that. We went too far with it. Yeah, that's that's not, yeah, that's why I was gonna bring because, it up. Because, because I feel like it's a universal principle of the universe that everything has an excess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of like the color gray, though. Well, what does that have to do with excess? Let's keep building. Well, I mean, uh, there's keep ro- paving, Jordan. But there's rocks that are gray, so you could be in nature and you still like see gray. You like this suburban environment. I mean, I always look at these houses, like back in the '60s, because there is this, there is some validity to, like, back in the past, things. Maybe it's a romantic idea, but that things were simpler. Like, if you look at an old neighborhood, every house is different. Every house is unique every house is individual every house has a different amount of trees in the front that's because it's been there long but, enough that some have been torn down and new yeah. ones are built <laughs> well, things change. Well, but maybe i don't know if that's entirely the case i think that they just built them now we just build them in mass where well, they, they had then, mass built homes too sears yeah. used to send them out on trains the whole home as a nowadays you have like literally in a cul-de-sac like all of those houses are the same as the cul-de-sac next to it you have a lot of people doing speculation where one yeah. company buys a whole neighborhood. You're right about that. Yeah. That's what, uh, that, and to me, it's, I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I look at that and I said, you know what? They did it better back then. Like, where houses are more unique. I get it now. It's more economical. It probably is more economical. But I love having, I, I don't, I'm a nonconformist at heart. And doing this whole romantic thing, it's sort of make, giving me that feeling that, you know what? Everyone is sort of becoming too similar. And if the romantics didn't, like, the, what we believe and in individuality today, like expressing ourselves, like being different from everyone else, and like the person who stands out from society is a hero, that comes from this era, right? The rest of the bus and travel the country, Jordan. I'm, 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 I'm thinking about it. Right? I'm thinking about <laughs> Why it. I, and the first thing I'm going to do is go to Burning Man. But I definitely see some truth to that. And I don't think that, obviously, that's you know, opposing rationality. I think that that's a reasonable person would conclude that everyone being the same isn't good and that there is power in the individual, which brings us to the next point. Or before we move on, the last thing on nature, Preston, let me ask, or let me ask Ian this. Let me ask you. Okay. Enlightenment was about dominating nature, about bending the world to our will. We can create a city out of nothing. We can make the world um, conform and bend to our will. With the romantics thought that nature is unconquerable, that nature is untamable, 
that nature is more beautiful than anything that we can replace it with. Where do you come down on that, on those two sides? Should we just completely terraform nature so, to our will, or should we... I'm an environmentalist. I don't think we should terraform nature, but it's become clear that we have a lot of effect on it. We have the potential to have even more. Like, for a long time, there was this idea that we would the Earth was so big we would never exhaust the oceans or pollute everything, but I think it's been shown that we do have a lot of power over our environment, so we have to be careful stewards. We can't have this idea that nature is all-powerful in the modern era because we've had so much effect on it already. So cut the damn trees down. Is that what I'm getting? Cut them down. Cut them down only to save them. Cut them down to save them. Yeah. Well, well basically, that's re recognizing that's, that's, well, what it is, is it's, it's about... No, don't cut the trees. I'm saying I care about the environment. Cut the trees to save them. I get but it. Even if we shouldn't dominate the environment, we have the potential to it. We've shown that we've almost done that. Well, this isn't a question own. about potential. This is a question about should. Yeah, I'm should. saying we shouldn't, but we should be careful that the, the romanticists were not right. The environment is something that's much more powerful than we are. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, like, you look at Rome and, and the Empire of Rome and its heyday. Yes, they transformed, you know, whole, huge, swaths, huge swaths of Europe, North Africa, East Asia to their will. But then thousands of years later, all of that was ruined. And Not really. Nature, there were Roman roads still right. in use. There, I mean, there are cities yeah, they yes, built but still But you look roads. at it from the time of when the Romans were at the height of their power until now, and a lot of it has decayed. You look. You even look. You go to Rome and you look at the Roman Forum, the Roman Senate. But that, that doesn't that, 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 does not that does not necessarily refute. Any almost kind of, every single one of their cities is still the there. Nature, well, that, that nature not, has destroyed man's uh, attempt to conquer it. Well, actually, no. But the thing is, really? it, was, it looks like it's a lot more conquered than it was then, and it has been getting so steadily ever since. Well, like, the, since the Romans, but, but the, the problem with that, the whole the ruins, the ruins don't prove that because the thing you gotta understand is that when you're talking about the struggle of man versus nature. Man has to exist. So the problem with using ruins as an example is that the Roman Empire collapsed. So the Western yeah. Empire collapsed in a thousand years later. That yeah. The Eastern Empire, well, it was conquered, so it was a more continuous civilization there. Yeah. But what it is, that the things that the Romans built, that while they were there and while there were people in them, that they were able to exist despite mm -hmm. these natural forces, that well, the thing with ruins, the reason why that's a bad example is because the ruins were abandoned. And then they're just inanimate objects at that point. And of course, right. nature's going to conquer it if man is not actively making efforts. I think this idea of artificial being superior is this idea of that when man is here and that when we're acting, our acting can overcome nature. That we we make a decision yeah. when we want to do something a certain way. I mean, I, I, I look at I it like, we, like nature is going to outlive us. And when it's all said and as done... As individuals, we don't know that about the species. We don't yeah. know that our species won't be the a huge mass extinction event and leave not much nature left at all. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. but it's, it's definitely possible. I just like, think we haven't been pushed out of anywhere on Earth besides Antarctica. Man. I, I Everywhere look, we've I been, we it, still are. I look at it as it will. I look at it as a competition. It's, it's not men or man is dominant on nature or that nature is more dominant than man. It's a, it's a competition, right? We're fighting the fight today as men trying to conquer. Not I, I don't mean man as in male. Yeah, but we've been winning. Kind. Okay, we've been we've been winning. Like reliably. That's good. But that doesn't mean that we've won. And no, no, winning would be a like total victory would be a bad because thing. There could be, because there could be because let me let me give you let me give you a perfect example. Okay. There is a category five hurricane coming to swoop in and hit New Orleans. There is absolutely nothing humans can do to stop that. There's absolutely nothing we can do to stop it yet, and there's nothing that we can do to prevent massive damage and massive death. And Man yet, cannot conquer nature in that instance. Well, no, we do prevent most massive death and massive danger. Most of the hurricanes that hit the U.S. don't kill very many people. And we recover from them very quickly. It might be billions of dollars in damages, but it's from a trillion-dollar economy. 
So we do deal with these things. Over, so, so over time. Well, right? What I'm saying so is, what I'm saying use, is. Now if we're going to use time, then nature has a stronger upper hand. What Preston was saying, well, in the moment, you're dominating this particular aspect of nature. But also in this moment, nature is dominating humanity. Not really. So I, I a hurricane it, doesn't dominate humanity. There's nowhere that we can't live because of a hurricane. They just get there, wet. Most there, people just get have wet. Have you seen that New Orleans, how many people live there before Katrina and how many people have lived there after? Yeah, how we mismanage one city, but we don't, we've never been forced out of somewhere because we can't live there. Well, I, th I think actually a, a lot better, of people, a lot of people have better. literally been forced out of Katrina, for, I mean New Orleans. Well, there's, but it's still an inhabited area. The fact that less people live there because we haven't invested economically in it to rebuild from the hurricane is not the issue. It's not nature it's pushing us out. It was our own policy pushing those people exactly, out. Exactly, but it's not feasible to economically invest well, in also, we need, we need, I think when it, it comes to, to nature, are we, it, it, are, the thing is, when we're talking about nature, we, we have to, when we're defining nature, one of the questions we need to think about is, are we just talking about Earth? Because initially we were talking about life, right? But then we got into hurricanes and some of these weather patterns. The thing is that if you include that as part of nature, which I do, then one of the best cases for the superiority of nature over man actually would be a lot of astronomical stuff and a lot of things that happen in the solar system. That there are so many things that with, with current levels of technology can easily destroy any single Have planet. Have you seen the stars? Those things are tiny. Any single planet <laughs> that any single planet civilization could be easily destroyed you yeah. could have an asteroid you could have a gamma ray burst you could have a black hole you know and now this is where we got to be careful with our terminology because i think you know there's, there's a difference between using ken and like an absolute sense um versus using ken within the constraints of of technology because I think I, I think if we're talking about whether or not it is theoretically feasible for mankind to reach a point in technology where nature cannot conquer us I would err on the side of that 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 really very well could be the case it's highly likely but if we're talking about in the sense that there is that nature cannot destroy or that if we're talking about in the sense that like whether nature could destroy us right now there's a there's a lot of things that that definitely can you know, and that, that, and that when you're looking at some of the stuff that happens in outer space, when you're looking at the way the universe works and the forces that exist, there's a lot of things that are just so, way, way, way more powerful than man. You know, my only thing would bring up the, like, that's the reason why I said the ruins are a, a bad example is because, you know, that, that man is not there actively resisting. But these things that I'm mentioning, that these are things that even when man is there actively resisting, if there's a gamma ray burst, even if somehow we knew it was coming, which we probably wouldn't, because those things are basically the speed of light. But even if so, through some measure, like we knew it was coming, there wouldn't really be anything that we could do about it right now at this point. Even if we were here, we were inhabiting the structures, and we were actively building, and our society was thriving, there's nothing we have in our possession, you know, not even the most advanced technology, that would be able to stop that gamma ray burst from happening, to stop that gamma ray burst from affecting the people from who it impacts. So... The romantic idea of nature, like imagine, you know, us three, we're transported to a place on earth that has had no human contact, right? It's just a completely natural place on earth. Like Australia. Like, like, like Australia or like... Yeah, no one lives in Australia, guys. Yeah, like there's some parts of Australia. Some parts, but not, but, not um, Australia in general. I heard there's some parts in Brazil that are like that, that no one has really been able to get to. But... The romantics would say that this is a place where humans can find inspiration. This is a place of true beauty. This is a sublime place. What experience do you think we would have there that the romantics would want us to have? There? So we're, we're here at this untapped place. And if I know Theodore Roosevelt was, man, I think he was a romantic. Because if you read the, like his story, 
he did a lot of this. Like he wanted to be isolated in the North Dakota Badlands because he just felt reinvigorated by being one with nature. Like so a lot of that was fake, though. Like he would just get <laughs> no, people to bring in dead bears and take pictures with no, him. No, we're not talking about like his killing animals, but like he would go there and look for buffalo. Uh, at least initially, before he was, when he With was young. and things. Like when, when he, he had his family's yeah. money and he would there were times, exaggerate yeah, he did, this a little there bit. There were times when he actually didn't. And he would be by himself on the sports cycle. He had friends with him. But, I mean, that's still, to go do that, even with all of this help. And you're in the middle of nature. You, it's still dangerous. It's very dangerous. Yeah. But the, the, the point is, is being in this place where we could potentially be one with nature. What do you guys think would be the experience that you would have in this place? Well, I think especially as far as romanticism is concerned, I would definitely say beauty. And, like, that's one thing that I, I uh, you know, I, nature has a beauty to it. It's undeniable. When you're out there, like, I've, I've been hiking in some majestic places. I've been to, to Colorado. I've been to Switzerland. Uh, and in Switzerland, man, like, I was in some very isolated places. Like, I was in some areas, you know, because even, like, there were towns around there, you know, the trails go off in different places. Um, and that there were there were areas that the trails led to that were in their natural state where nobody lived there, nobody had been farming there. You know, it was it basically just hadn't been touched. Or if it had been touched, it had been a very long time since it was because there were obviously some pretty mature trees there. So if anybody had ever lived there at that point, it was a very long time ago. Nature had reclaimed it, but what it was, it was, it was beautiful. You know, mm -hmm. it was beautiful. Is that you know, and, it, and that it, I was there, and you know, you're seeing these mountains, and you're seeing the woods, and you hear the birds. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's all these different things. You know, that it's it's just it's it's beautiful, it's sublime, it's peaceful. That there's just an experience that is very difficult to describe that you get there. That you don't get from just the city, which isn't to say that the city doesn't offer something. You know, it's just that something that the city offers is very different. You know, we could argue all day as to whether it's better or worse, whether it feels better or worse, but it's not the same thing, and it's not you know something that's a replacement for nature. It's not, yeah. and, and that when I was there, I just felt this sense of peace that I've never felt before. I felt like I was in touch with the spirits. I felt like I was in Damn. touch with everything. I'm serious. Like there was something that just yeah. came over me, man. Like, and I can't, I can't so explain you, it. You basically went through everything that the romantics were telling us yes. that you would kind of go through. Exactly. Uh, and you did it, you know, <clears throat> you, you, Basically, personally, like you and it shows. It shows that nature has a power because, I, like I mentioned, that you, you know, witness I'm, the sublime. Because you know, because I'm like I said, I'm, I'm a rational kind of guy. Like I try, you know, when I'm solving problems, I really like to look at things objectively. But you know that I, I, I was still overcome by this, and I and I think it does show that there there is a power that these subjective experiences have, and there definitely is a power in nature as well, and that it's it's undeniable, and that it, it, when you're there. And you experience it that there that there is something to it, uh, whether we can put it in the words or not, whether we think it's objective or not. You know, like somebody who's a hardcore materialist might just say, "Oh, you know, whatever the chemicals in your brain are making us feel like that." But you know, when you're when you're there, when you're looking at, you know, what what the impact of that on your existence is, that is is quite a powerful thing. And that, that you know, those were because I mentioned Colorado, I mentioned Switzerland. There was a couple times in my life where I was like that, but Switzerland was the most because Switzerland was one of some of the most isolated places, um, you know, because I was hiking by myself that uh, a lot of times I'd go with my mom and she has bad knees, so like we'd avoid the tougher trails. But in, in Switzerland, I'd go by myself and I went on some real tough trails that, that led to some locations that were just completely in their natural state. And were you by yourself when you started or just when you got back? I, <laughs> I was by myself both times. When I started and when I got back, it wasn't like, 
went out with a group and a bunch of people died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That would that would be one of the examples of how it could you know, go bad. Now maybe a natural experience well, may not be so good because yes, you know it's right. true that there are there were survival threats that existed in nature that we don't face, uh, at least not to the same extent now in modern life. And I think that's what these romanticists sort of glossed over. Because if we went to sort of a Brazilian rainforest, yeah, we would go there and for a few moments we would be in awe. We'd be seeing the parrots with these beautiful colors. We would be seeing sort of all these wild animals, snakes, you know, about nine feet long. We would be seeing, you know, monkeys that we've never seen before. I mean, it would just be sort of, you would be experiencing a reality that you couldn't even imagine. And it would just, it would give you the feeling of the sublime. But in five minutes, you would be slapping all the mosquitoes off of you. You would be sort of jumping around because you got ants biting you on your feet. Mm-hmm. Or you would be sort of in your tent, not able to experience the world because you would get this disease, a malaria disease or something like mm-hmm. that. Or, or you're you trying to get, figure out, you're, you, you, then you're hungry, but to eat, you need to go hunt some animal. Yeah. And you're not at the top of the food chain and there anymore because there's a bunch of... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's like... So, I mean, that part of nature is very true to it. And, like... Personally, I wouldn't want to live in nature for that reason because it can be very dangerous and it can be just downright ugly, you know? Like, I don't like, like, I don't know about y'all, but every time I see sort of food chain videos where it's an animal that's eating another animal, I just feel bad, man. I, I get that it's part of the, the, the chain of, you know, nature, but it no, just, the, the animal just, is doing what's necessary to survive. To survive. Yeah, he ain't doing anything wrong. I'm not trying to put him on the prosecutor's bench, man. I'm just saying that when you watch these lions tear down these baby fauna, it's just a part of me like, man, that's that part of nature isn't as beautiful as, you know, I don't find beauty. Um, yeah, Dude, but, I know. What, I know what you mean because there, there was a similar experience. I remember one time I was watching a documentary and like there was there was this baby seal and it was adorable. And then there was like <laughs> and, 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 and then somebody's like, crying. And then there's like there's like this whale and the whale kills it and there's blood everywhere. And there's something else that's similar that happened yeah. with a polar bear and you feel you feel bad for it. Like you know the, the, there's this, this this round fluffy mm-hmm. seal and this white and it's not hurting anything and it just gets eaten by this this beast. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean obviously there are pockets of nature that are extremely beautiful but there's pockets of nature that are extremely ugly and terrible and no one would ever want to be there for any prolonged amount of time um but talking about the experience that individuals are going to have that moves us into the next um core ideal of romanticism this is one of my favorite uh it's about the importance of the individual right so the narcissism basically (laughs) um it's using intuition it's using instinct and using emotion. Um, it's along, like the individual perspective. Yeah, individual perspective. Now, some sources say you're using this in conjunction with reason, whereas enlightenment, enlightenment thinkers would have you discard your intuition, your instincts, and your emotions in favor of more systematic thinking. But I think what the romantics are saying is that, no, no, hold on there. You don't want to throw these things out. These things are central to uh, the human experience, and these things can lead you to progress if that's where you want to go or these things can lead you to actually manifest your will on earth if you use your emotions your instincts and your intuition and not only is it's just using these things but they had a certain mode of living and i think william wordsworth was the one that he talked about exuberance so that the way that you should live is basically through your emotion and you should like sort of embody lively energy like um, you should be, you should sort of show your excitement. You know, you should sort of live with strong emotions in, in every moment. 
know, making sure that you're understanding the beauty of the reality of this moment that you're in and responding to it with your emotions, allowing your emotions to be swayed by the by the moment. You know, the philosophers and, for this were like Schelling, uh, Schelling, Kierkegaard, and uh, what's his name, Berkeley, the guy who made the college. Uh, UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And definitely uh, this guy who thought that like all of experience is just God expressing himself through our minds. Uh, I don't know about I don't know about all that, but um, it was the I power of the individual to shape. I definitely reality. I, I, I think that you know that this is one of my favorite things about romanticism. If there was one thing that I would want to take away from this, you know, I I, I call myself a I'm trying to be an enlightened romanticist, and what what I mean is using or try to <clears throat> to use the best of romanticism to sort of cover for the worst of the enlightenment right so basically using the best ideas that are put forth in the romanticist era to sort of counter for the cold calculated empirical nature of enlightenment which can sort of take away the beauty of life it can take away the sublime moments of life so it's trying to use the best of romanticism to sort of fill the gaps that are still left by with enlightenment and one of the ways to do that is to actually live like Wordsworth saying you know where you're trying to take in every moment and you're trying to sort of get in touch with your emotions and you're trying to experience things like if there's something that goes on in your life you have an achievement you have a right to be super happy to be super stoked you know to go tell everyone that this is the best day of your life or to use you know hyperboles or to go out and celebrate and to go just be this really happy person. You know, sometimes people who are super successful, they complete something and they're just, they're on to the next task. They don't really take that moment to sort of process what just happened to them. Or they don't use imagination to sort of see that what happened to them has a lot of profound meaning. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that that is important because that is good living. There are people who do that. And those people are generally more happy because... You know, like, uh, I think it's like memory gets burned into your mind when when strong emotions are associated with the event, right? Something like that. Yeah. So the more higher your emotions, the more you're going to remember events. And the more memories you have, the more you sort of have a good measure of who you are and of the good things that happen to you. You can, like, if you have a strong memory, you can go back and relive that memory every what time. I do it all the time. artists like Hawthorne or Poe? Uh, like the American dark romantics where memory is something that haunts people for decades. It definitely is. Like that's, that's memories. It's, it's powerful yeah. for them too. in some of their more, uh, mm-hmm. some of their more like nicer poems, but in some of them, it just destroys people. Oh, I think that's at the bottom of all of these psychological traumas. It's just memory. Like you know, the, the bad memory. Obsession's a big part of these romantics. Yeah. Yeah, um, like how something that when you go through an experience, it can scar you. So it's, it's something that we can, can, it can alter the way like your Frankenstein, mind works. Like that big so let, let's go. With, let's go with that. Okay. So obviously, it's the right thing to be super exuberant, to have high levels of energy, to be excited when things are going bad. But when things are going, I mean, when things are going good. Sorry. But when things are going particularly <clears throat> bad, how much of that suffering should we try to feel? How much of that suffering should we try to um, express or try to hold on to, and, and and really understand that? Look, this is what's happening to me. This is how it's affecting me, and I'm just going to let this emotion be what it is. I'm not going to try to restrain it in any other way. In fact, I'm going to try to amplify it. That's kind of what romantics tend to do. Yeah, but do you think? I I I mean, that's. Do you think that's something that? 
is, provide a kind of is a good way. Is, is that a good philosophy? I mean, I think at least some of that's necessary. This kind of acceptance and this kind of like this love for bad feelings too. Like, can I waterfall this? Just yeah. understanding that there is some importance to having the bad experiences with the good is kind of a good way to. <coughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely value in that and in not avoiding the bad when you can experience it. Well, also another thing that uh, sort of a different way of looking at it, and this this um, it's probably romanticism as well, but you know, I, I think one approach that someone can take to some of these bad things, um, and actually this this might be a little bit less romantic and more of a hybrid uh, between the two, because uh, a little bit of overlap. Because I think in the end of the day, a lot of this in terms of how it applies to our life is about finding balance. Yep. Um, yep. But how you can experience this suffering. And it's full, and, and understand the, the this objective reality of the suffering, and not deny it. We still try to transform it, yep. and think about it. Like that's that's been behind a lot of the greatest achievements in human history. This ability to be in an adverse circumstance, but rather than just completely accepting it or completely denying it, you accept it, but you say, "I'm going to transform this. I'm going to let this be the impetus." For some sort of self-discovery, so, so some sort of self-discovery or, or higher action or a great achievement, like a perfect example, you look at the moon landing, right? The moon landing. One of the reasons why we did that was because the Soviets scared us. The Soviets were ahead of us in space technology. This idea that a country that was so hostile towards the United States had superior capabilities in space than us freaked everyone out. Yeah, but and we had better special effects, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, moon landing conspiracies, right. right? But what happened was that, you know, that was adversity. And what happened was that our recognition of that adversity, that willingness to embrace it rather than deny it, ended up being a good thing, but only because we transformed it. We didn't just live in the adversity, that we found a way to transcend it. We allowed that adversity to be an impetus for action that created a positive outcome. And I think that that right there is, is really the essence, that I, I think, of what we should be looking for when we're applying to romanticism and uh, the Enlightenment principles in That's, our lives. Like, if we're talking about how we're going to live better lives and be better people, there is definitely about finding the right balance yeah. because there is a lot of subjective beauty, but this idea that you can be happy just by living in denial and by just finding this blissful state. I mean, that's that's ridiculous and you're setting yourself up for even worse suffering later on. But finding that balance, being able to recognize your reality, but also think about how you can transform it and how you can find the good in difficult situations, that that, that, that is really one of the keys to leading a better life. But I think, like, one of the places where, and I mean, what you said, Preston, is, like, you basically found the wisdom, right? Like, I, I, I think you did. You basically found the golden mean of how to use negative emotions to create something positive, to create something beautiful, to create achievements in your life to like, you know, uh, which weren't going to be possible if you didn't embrace the negative. But there's also this romantic idea that you wallow in self-pity for prolonged amounts of time. And I don't think that that's, I think it's, it's. It's negative. I think that's a, yeah, I don't a, a like dangerous that. place I don't to like be. That. Like if you're in a bad state of life and you get depressed and then you surround yourself with depressed people and then you buy depressing paintings, you lit, you buy depressing music to listen to. And I think it's just you're surrounding yourself. I mean, obviously, you're so in tune with this strong emotion of pain that your life becomes you, you, you just you're the embodiment of pain. and You spread pain everywhere you go. 
and you're not seeking to get out of it. Or I don't think you're seeking to get out of it because at some level you enjoy being in this place because it's familiar. Well, I wouldn't even say just like so much way... is about getting out of it so much as it is processing it. Yeah. Like I recognize that because, you know, because like I've been through difficult situations in the past. You know, I, I've been through, a, you know, a situation where I was emotionally distraught. That I, I do re understand why we might want to stay in these situations for a little bit. But what it is is that we, we definitely want to process it and that, you know, I think we should only stay in them as long as it's necessary to process it. And then this idea that we just like there's there's a difference between acknowledging something and dwelling on it. And I think acknowledging is good. Dwelling is bad. Acknowledging allows us to develop an understanding of things. Acknowledging allows us, you know, to to recognize what our reality is. And in a lot of ways, we prevent ourselves from actually fooling ourselves uh, through that acknowledgement that we recognize that that there's this bad time. But but dwelling dwelling is when it becomes an obsession. Exactly. And the dwelling is yeah. when it takes over our life, where that's the core of our existence, or one of the key components of the core of our existence. Uh, and that dwelling is what's bad, and that I think to expand, it's not even just about good or bad things. It's about, I would say obsession in general um, is something that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, so that actually is a really good segue into the next uh, sort of concept that we have here, and that's this romantic uh, belief that in order for a human being to find wisdom or to find meaning, that they have to spend a good amount of time in solitude. As an individual, you know, because that's what we're talking about right now, you have to separate yourself from everyone else from time to time. You have to really be by yourself and meditate and think who you are. What is your place in reality? Why are you here? Where are you going? What does it mean? What do you want to do with your life? Asking yourself these questions and, and, and sort of making sense of the world in your own unique way without any outside influence, right? Trying to determine... It's, it's the idea of what Ralph, all, Ralph Waldo Emerson talked about when he wrote the essay on self-reliance. You know, relying on your own intuition, relying on your own imagination, relying on your own freedom and emotion to make sense of the world. And the only way that you can do that is by removing outside experience. And I think that that's a very strong idea that in, sometimes when you're in these big city environments, there's all of this social pressure. There's all of these social norms. There's all of these social... Um, you know, laws that you have to either conform to, you know, out of fear of ostracism, or that they just seep into your unconsciousness. You don't even realize that they're affecting you. Well, but basically, there's, it's, like, there's, it's, a, there's it's, a lot of things that we don't do or that we do do simply and only for the reason that right. doing otherwise would but be weird, and not, that there's no practical reason not to do a certain activity, yeah. but we just we just conform to that, and that, that that's and and I think that in a lot of ways. You know, kind of going back to what romanticism was was rebelling against. Like I, I think, and in in, in that, that's very important to recognize. Um, but it's also at the same time, it's it's something that I, I think could potentially be a little bit of a point of overlap between both. And the reason for that is because, like on one hand, you have romanticism embracing the individuality. Mm -hmm. But when we really think about why conformity could be bad, we really get into some rationalist and, and uh, enlightenment 
kind of ideas because when we think about okay well this is just a norm why is it bad to follow something just because it's a norm you know a lot of times what people say is like well you know they'll talk about function right that if it's not you know a, a common argument in defense of weird or eccentric behavior is that oh it's not hurting anybody it's not infringing upon anybody's rights this right. and that you know and then when you get into that you know that sounds a lot less romantic that sounds a lot more um, in line with enlightenment. the enlightenment, that is this idea of that you know if it's not functionally bad, if it's not causing some sort of harm, why should we have a problem with it? But the individually, the individuality aspect of it, um, you know, that's definitely enlightenment. And I think that this this acceptance of things that are eccentric, you know, is an example of how even though on the face value enlightenment and romanticism may seem to be opposed in a lot of ways, um, they're not always as different as we like to seem. Well, well, we like to think, or that they may seem. What I wonder, what I wonder is, is how much of the great world ideas, how much of the, the true innovative ideas that individuals are having, how much of these theories, these philosophies are being sort of created or imagined or thought of when an individual is in a solitude setting, when they're by themselves. Because I know my, myself personally, a lot of my philosophy comes down to what I was thinking when I was alone. Or a lot of the brilliant ideas that I have, like even for creating the Wisdom Factory, was when I was by myself. Like I was just thinking about things. Dude, I've and, had, and I've I had, had ideas a, for... I had a, a heightened level of sensitivity to the things around me and, and to trying to make sense of it. And it's just, the to me, the strongest thing about it is the lack of distraction, where there's nobody there but Jordan. And Jordan has to figure out, okay, he has a desire. He's setting the goalpost, and then he's trying to figure out how to get there, and he's not using any other mode of thought but his own. And it's a very, to me, that's a very, you're, you're building strength that way, A, but B, it allows for true creativity because this isn't going to be that's something that someone else thought. This isn't someone else's um, philosophy. This isn't someone else's mode of thinking. This is purely mine, and where it's coming from is out of my individual experience, out of my individual imagination, which is unique in this world. And so, you know, solitude sort of allows for that process, uh, for, allows for that experience and that individuality and that identity and the brilliance of the individual to manifest itself in the world. And then that idea can be co-opted and improved in the world. But I, I, I mean, I don't, I, if you had to ask me, I'm pretty sure that some of the best and most brightest ideas that we've ever had came through solitude moments where people were in solitude settings, where people were by themselves working really hard on something. And obviously they wanted to share it with the world or maybe social capital was the motivation for it. Well, but one the thing actual... I would point out though is that a lot of times when that happens, it's not so much as it's not so much intentional though. Mm -hmm. That because I've experienced the same thing, but I've never I never just like said I'm gonna go sit down in solitude so I can think of things. Or like when I have it, 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 the ideas that have come up with it hasn't been necessarily like the most game changing ideas. Like a lot of times being able to come together with other people and exchange ideas is how we find those truths. But what it is is that there there's instances where I guess you have enlightened moments yeah. and that they're very random. You know, I've had this before. Like I've had ideas for articles and for research papers in the shower. Yeah. There have been times exactly. where I was having a hard time writing a paper um, like I didn't like the way it sounded or something like that and then I go for a run or something and I come back and I write a, the whole freaking thing in 30 minutes and it's like it's like one of my best papers that I've ever written you know so you have those moments sometimes where you just where it just hits you uh, it, you know it, it, it just hits you in that 
what what's one thing that's really important is figuring out how to take advantage of those moments because you, you know that we we have these times where we just have a moment of insight and wisdom and where we kind of transcend some of the barriers that nor in our normal lives are affecting us but we can't do that all the time and it's almost impossible to do that at will and that uh, being able to take full advantage of those um, and, and translate some of the ideas that we come up in, the, in those circumstances to our life in general well, is very important you know if you're, you're, you're trying to create something uh, one of the best things that I could say that that in, in order to make that happen in order to have inspirational moments is to Obviously, you're going to want to put yourself in situation. You, maybe you need more solitude. You need more time to crave out for solitude. Because if, if these things are happening when you're by yourself, or even if you're in a social environment, but you're not talking to anybody, you're still sort of within your own realm, then you, 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 know, you can very easily find yourself distracted by society, distracted by what's going on on TV, or what's going on on the internet, or what's going on in your classroom, or what's going on in your groups, and stuff like that. But to really have Preston time, or to really have Ian time, or really to have Jordan time, to sit there but and... He is having some Ian time and, right now. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, to really create the opportunity for this inspiration to happen, or set the scene for this inspiration, set the table for the inspiration to come and, and sit down with you and sort of have this dialogue where you guys can come to something brilliant. Well, so one thing that I, I think that they're, they're, they're on to something here. Out of, out of all these romantic ideas, I find this idea that solitude is important because it gives you a heightened sense of sensitivity about the world around you and the way that you're going to make sense about it. I think they're on to something. You know, one, one thing that really makes, this makes me think of, too, is horseshoe theory. And what if, what if romanticism and rationalism are an example of that? Because it seems from all the discussion that we've had, that going super far in one direction has led to things that are kind of similar to the other. Like, you think about romanticism, right? That romanticism is this rejection of logic, and it's this rejection of, you know, the, this, this empirical uh, way of looking at things. But then when you start talking about some of these experiences and some of the beauty and how we can get insights from those, and then defending why that's a good thing and why we should apply that to our lives... We, we start sounding like enlightenment people. And it goes the same thing the other way around. That when we're talking about, you know, things, you know, good versus bad, and really what what helps us understand the world and, and how we should go about solving problems, that when you take the, the, this, this rational approach to its extreme, we, we do find, you know, that it, it provides a pretty good explanation for the utility of well, some things that are a lot more abstract. Now, okay, so... We are blurring the lines, and this is a, a discussion about romanticism, and it's important to find where the two meet, but it's also important to know where they separate. And let me well, they definitely let, separate. Let me, let me I'm, just, this, I'm just saying that I think I, that's why I bring up horseshoe theory. The idea that when you go right. to the extremes of one, yes. that it can it, that, it that's when it's easiest to blow the line, to blur the line. Let me turn this line into a bold line and separate enlightenment from romanticism. So the goal of solitude is. Yes, the utilitarian aspects of it, the brilliant ideas and the effects that that's going to have in society is a byproduct of it. But the primary reason why you're going to want to find solitude and why you're going to want to have these moments with yourself, these intimate moments with yourself, is because of the concept of authenticity. It's the concept of really understanding who you are as Preston or as Jordan and sort of like... Taking or cutting all the strings that the, what, all the pressures 
that society wants you to be, you know, and deciding who you want to be and who you are and how and what are what makes you unique. You know, it's basically they call it authenticity, you know, being authentic. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that people do simply because of social pressures or, you know, if, if you're you can you can have solitude and not come up with any idea that benefits anybody. But you're simply spending the time to get to know yourself or you're spending time to get to know what where you find meaning. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it doesn't really have to be. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're going to have solitude, it's going to lead to, to more utilitarian, to more enlightenment uh, aspects of things in the 21st century. But there's also that unique aspect of you're just doing this to be authentic. You're just doing this to sort of try your best to find out where the societal pressures are and to say that, you know what? Society wants me to be this. I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to be this. I don't want to accept this idea just because that's what liberals are accepting, you know, yeah. or I don't want to like this. I don't like this type of music. I don't want to hear this type of music, even though that all my friends want to put it on. I'm going to tell them that it sucks. You know, <laughs> basically just being an authentic individual and not being this, you know, conformist bullshitter. And I think that's important because we know people who are who are both. We know people who are individuals in society. There's no one in the world that's like them. And we know people who we've seen them thousands of times. Where we've seen, we, we felt like we know this. We know everything about this person. That's probably unfair. But there's no, you know, people I know exactly there. what you mean. Dude, like, I have you, met people yes. like that. They're, they're, cut, they're, they're that what you, you call it, cut and paste people. That, yeah, that you know, that you meet them and that they're just... They, there's nothing about them that really stands out or that's exactly. unique. The society has turned them into some kind of robot or drone right. where they just do what society says they're supposed to do and they like things that are very mainstream. They do things that are very mainstream and they're, they're not even... I would go so far as to say in some of the extreme cases, you have people who are not aware of their own individuality. Yeah. You have people who they conform yeah. to such an extent oh, that I they get into this... this this is a reflection of groupthink. They get oh into this groupthink mentality, and they're, they're they're blissfully unaware. It's kind of like when we were mentioning the free will discussion. How you had said that free will is a choice. I mean, that's a separate debate. But you know that I, I definitely see. Like, you know, I think this is an example of why uh, some people will think that because you know you, whether it's right or wrong. Because you know you definitely do have people who they they provide a pretty a compelling example and an example that forms a pretty strong case uh, for that view of free will being a choice that they don't recognize their free will that they just you know but that we have the power to do it but not everybody exercises that power exactly uh, and, and I think the romantics are right to want to sort of unleash the potential for every individual to find their uniqueness and to find their authenticity um, but the next point that we're going to move on uh, to is Go back to this idea of romantic imagination. And real quick, I just want to uh, sort of give you a, an illustration about what they meant. So this isn't anti-reason or anti-logic. A lot of romantics understand, obviously, that you have to have some reason and some logic or else you're just going to be living in a non-secretary life and you're not going to make any sense and no one's going to want the to be around you. The hat is actually and, a shit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we'll be talking like Preston uh, throughout most of the day. Um, <laughs> If you ever read one of Preston's papers, you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But um, so 
Yeah, Jordan, I mean, Jordan, you read Jordan's paper, he's just a robot, like, he conforms, oh, you know, that he has, he has no personality, he has no soul. Like, you read it, and it's like you read these ideas before, like, everybody else has already come up with them, and hey, that's what makes you unique. That's what makes you unique. The fact that Ian doesn't know how to read, um, that's his individuality. Ian doesn't know himself. how to read, but we think that gives him great experience, and that's why we keep him here at the Wizard <laughs> we, we make him wear a helmet. So, so, uh, well, this is going to be interesting, and, and I dare you to refuse the wisdom of this next point. Human consciousness and experience, human experience, comes down, comes to us from a sum and an amalgamation of these great principles that unite the Enlightenment with Romanticism, right? Um, and and. After I put this out there, we're going to try to find people who embody this formula. What that is, is using reason and logic in conjunction with intuition, instinct, and emotion. So where does that meet? When you, Because the Enlightenment thinkers are going to say, well, you're obviously going to prioritize reason and logic for everything. That's how you're going to understand the world. That's how you're going to make sense of it. That's how you're going to get to progress. That's how you're going to be the best person you're going to be. Well, not so fast. We can't throw out intuition, instinct, and emotion. And some examples of this that I'll give you are like generals will use instinct. They'll use intuition. They'll play on the emotions of their uh, of their soldiers. Or that's like if the emotional, what do they call that? The, well, the morale. The morale. If the morale of your soldiers are not where you need it to be, doesn't matter how great your plan is, doesn't matter how great your reason and your logic is for this attack plan, you could fail. You know, with generals, so, only the successful ones get famous, right? Yes. Well, so the intuition might not be... And the, and the ones who really it. suck get famous, too. Anyway, I mean... Sorry. It's a nice jacket. Uh, yeah, that's between the epic and epic fail. Epic fail! <laughs> what were you going to say? When you lose These a battle so, so bad... So, that so only the successful there. generals get re remembered. Right, so I mean... Just the fact that they do take risks doesn't make it a good idea. A lot of the generals in history that are the most remembered are the most calculating. Like Napoleon had plans that took 20 years to reenact. Mm -hmm. Or to enact, I mean, I'm sorry. No, that's that's why we're including reason and logic in the formula. Yeah, because yeah. for me, for me, it goes back to the thing I mentioned earlier about balance. Because the way I go about things, so I, here, here's the way I see it. There's just kind of two two ways of looking at it. So the the first thing is, I, I see for me that a lot of times instinct is sort of the impetus for action, but reason and logic is a very important check on it because what can happen is sometimes we feel a certain way, but then when yeah. we really think about it, we realize it's maybe not the best idea. The, the second way of looking at it is, is it's also important to consider the, the circumstances in terms of whether or not you have time to plan because what it is is that logic and reason are good in instances where there's information and you have to gather it right. and analyze it and figure out what to do. But when you talk about like war, for example, with some of these generals, sometimes we're thrust into situations where they're completely unexpected. They hit us out of the blue. We don't know very much about the situation. Um, and that that's where really intuition comes in. Because having good intuition and having good gut instincts and being able to follow those can really save us in instances but, you know, where we have a situation that we're not expecting, where right. we don't know everything about it, yeah. and that this, this conventional approach of just calculating your way out of everything is not yeah. going to fly because we don't have enough information or enough time to be able to make that work. But the military values intelligence over all else. Like they, they do a lot to make sure they're not in a situation where they have to make that intuition decision. 
And that's yeah. the last resort to them in most people. I'm not saying you should never do it, but yeah. And that's, I mean, I think I think it's definitely secondary. That's uh, we, I, I think it's secondary too, but I, I think it's it. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a wild card. So there can be instances well, where say it's, the, it's, the, it's, the other general could have more reason and more logic on you. But if you because instinct, what instinct does, it, it, there's a time factor with instinct. There's, yeah. a, there's a time factor with intuition. And when there's unexpected circumstances that happen, like if you're in a in a in a in a war, in a, in a war scenario, and it rains or it becomes extra foggy, and there's this element, you know, and there's these factors that none of you can calculate for, then those other two become well, there's one more particular important. One, well, there's so there's one saying that, that I've depending, heard, depending on the situation, that's where you know intuition and instinct, and even maybe to a lesser extent emotion, but you know can become just as important as reason and logic. It, 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 depends, it really depends on the scenario, but on your average scenario, if I'm doing a military, I'm going to want the people who have the better skills in reason and logic. I, agree I mean, with you but if that, you're right? blind, though, suddenly, you know, your hearing becomes a lot more important, too. So I can see what you're saying. Like, you cannot dismiss one without the other. There's no position we should come to nowadays. It's not a little bit postmodern, a little bit pastiche. Yeah. So if you... Because there's this idea... That like when it comes now, let's look at this from a soldier to soldier, combat to combat type scenario. When you have extensive training in killing the other person, you know, it becomes an instinct what to do. If you have to think about how you're going to maneuver around this person, the chances are that time it's going to take you to do that, you're going to get lopped off. Yeah. You know, it's it's a, it's a principle in baseball, and I know it's in a lot of sports where they tell you don't think, just act. Right, where you're trying to find the place where things flow naturally. That's that's really that's literally what military yeah. training is about. Yeah. Because I remember reading an an article about this about like the, the psychology and the science of, of boot camp and mm -hmm. why you know why do they they yell at these recruits the way they do? Why is there such an an, an, an emphasis on order and on discipline and on following orders the reason for that is because when things are fast-paced that you don't have that time to exactly. think and that what are the most lethal soldiers are the ones who they can just follow orders that they see there's an enemy soldier there bang he's dead they don't think about yep. oh well the inherent yeah. value of this and that and oh, should, do i have an what's, obligation what's, what's to, that important saying Preston? is not to reason why but to do and die yeah right? <laughs> not to reason why but to do and die and that in the context of war that when you're in a situation where you're fighting for your survival, where it's kill or be killed, where you're shooting at the enemy and the enemy is shooting at you, and that the strongest side will win, that being able to think fast can often be more important than being able to think the most logically or being able to think the way that's most in line with, with objective truth. All right, so I think that we've... Uh, so for all of you out there, there was a factor, I think we're on agreement. We're going to recommend that in order to enhance your experience, in order to enhance your quality of life, you should use intuition, instinct, and emotion. Incorporate that with your reason and your logic. Don't just forget about those aspects. A lot of people do. And if you don't, you're going to have the advantage over everyone else. Um, and that's something that's, you know, that's, that's, use, that's useful now. Because here's how but, I would say it. Here's how I, I would uh, say it should work is that... When you're using reason and logic, because reason and logic is, is all about weighing, essentially, that you're thinking about what are the pros, what are the cons. A good way to achieve a balance, uh, in my opinion, is that when we're, we're thinking about, you know, how can we avoid the excesses of either thing and how can we provide outcomes that are good, that are objective, but at the same time, it will give life meaning and have beauty, that 
go through the logic, go through the weighing mechanisms, but don't forget to weigh emotion. Don't forget to weigh some of these more objective right. things. Because even though they might not seem quite as fact-based or concrete or objective as some of these other things we talk about, that the value that they have are, are things that are still going to be important in the context of, of making that decision. And that uh, if you're picking a career, for example, that, yeah, there's a lot of factors, but you, you, there's nothing wrong with whether or not it makes you happy being one of, that, uh, one of them. And, yes, the happiness might be subjective. That happiness might have a lot to do with your emotions and how you feel towards a certain well, yeah. thing, but it's still important. And that when you're trying to analyze things and make, the, make these decisions from a logical perspective, there's still going to be much more subjective factors that exactly. have value and that you don't want because, to forget to weigh them. Because when you're looking at this, and this is what I noticed from the two sides, so the difference between reason and logic and intuition, instinct, and emotion is one is, a, one is a universal principle. The others are very individualistic. The others are very unique. Your intuition is going to be different from everyone else's. Your instincts are going to be different from, they're going to, you know, they're going to be unique to you. Your emotions are going to be unique to you. Now, if you put those three together, you're, that's going to be hyper unique to you. So it's about using reason and logic, but in your own way. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's having a personal um, sort of, it's going through decision-making processes that are more personal and that are going to allow you to get to a place that you want because the decision you make is tailor-made for you, you know, versus just reason and logic, oh, I should become a lawyer because that's what everyone wants me to do and that's how I'm going to get more money. And then that doesn't make you happy. There's all of these stories. I know I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast before, and there was this guy where his whole life he was surrounded by fighters. He was surrounded by, you know, he was grew up in this community where everyone set the ideal of the fighter as the highest archetype. Everyone wanted to be the best fighter. And he became, he trained and trained and trained, and he finally became the best fighter. He got himself to the world title match. And he defeated the world heavyweight champion, and he got the belt. And then he was still young. He was like 28. And ever since then, his life has been downhill. He didn't know what to do after that. He didn't know, he, he fell into depression. He didn't want to fight anymore because he had accomplished this task that he thought was what he wanted. But upon reflection, he realized that this isn't really what he wanted. There was a lot of societal factors, and this just seemed like the most reasonable and logical thing for him to do because he was good at it, because everyone encouraged him to do it. Uh, but he didn't really use his, I guess, his, his, his instincts, or he didn't really explore himself enough to realize that there's something more that I want. It's not just this title. It's not, you know, because otherwise, you know, he wouldn't have become so depressed when this was over. But uh, moving on to the, to the next point, there, I think that just, this is just describing sort of a, a unique aspect of romanticism. Um, so one of the cool things that they did was they identified with those in the margins of society. So it was like the first great movement where you're focusing on, you know, the immigrant or because these are the ones who are suffering. And uh, you got to go in? Okay. Uh, yeah, bring a cup, man. Oh, you're just gonna go on there. Um, so basically, you're 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 going to champion the cause of the ostracized people in society, you know, because a lot of these are your artistic people who are just misunderstood. They're misunderstood by the social conventions um, because they're either hyper unique or they're what they're doing is outside of the social norms or they're just seen as other because of their income or because of their ethnicity or because of their culture or, you know, or whatever it is. 
So I just think that it's interesting that you actually had a movement that focused, that championed the cause. And I know realism got into this, uh, post-colonialism got into this, but I think this is one of the first movements where you see a focus on the majority being transformed to a focus on the minority, which is important, you know, because obviously, I think, I don't know what great philosopher said it was, but the test of society is how they treat those in the minority. Um, so obviously that's an important principle that I think that they, it's, you know, it's, it's they're right about focusing on, on those the people who are in the margin society. I mean, they, you know, we can't forget about them. And no, we, can't. we should understand what they have to go through. Uh, and if we can, we could, we should do what we can to make it better. For them. Well, now when we're thinking um, about what makes society work, we have to think about it from a perspective of how it affects different groups that we, we can't judge, we can't measure it just by oh, you know, one, one person or one group or another says this is good, and that we have to think about some of the ne negative externalities associated with certain actions and how things that may seem good for one person, people can harm another or perhaps benefit. Ian, are you gonna, how long are you going to take to come back? Because we got a lightning round coming up. What's that? The questions, the questioning, questions? How long are you going to? Okay, well, all right, so let's... Uh, just finish it. No, sorry, Preston. I'm really sorry. I, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted, I want him for this question. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, but yeah, so you were talking about uh, the margin society. Oh yeah, but like that's the thing. Like when you think about what a successful society means, that you know, you you can't define it just by what is beneficial for one group of people. Now, now I would definitely say that you know, equality doesn't necessarily going to be the only measure. Like I understand why there might be instances where one group benefits more than another and yet it's still nonetheless net beneficial because it benefits everybody. It just maybe is distributed in a way that we wouldn't like, but we definitely have to take equality into consideration and uh, prevent ourselves from getting too narrow in how we interpret what success is um, and not getting ethnocentric or culturally uh, centric um, or otherwise prejudiced or, or, or narrow-minded um, in assessing what the priorities of society should be. Right, and that's very good. That's um, that's kind of allowed me into it. But uh, so first, I'm just gonna go ahead and talk about what it means to be sublime. Just want to define that for you guys because I know that that word has been thrown out, you know, throughout this podcast, and we just want everyone to know what we mean when we talk about sublime because it's a really beautiful concept. Actually, by definition, it's a beautiful concept. Um, after I talk about the sublime, we're going to go ahead and get into the lightning round, which I have some questions for you guys. Really deep, philosophical, meaningful questions that uh, I hope you know that you guys can answer uh, in a really beautiful way. Yeah, I, you know, let's, we'll see. We'll see. We we'll see what you guys say. We'll see if we can produce some wisdom, as the Wisdom Factory does. Well, the objective meaning of Ian's hat. That's, that's what the wisdom. <laughs> yeah, find the objective meaning. He's he's, he's got a. He's got, how would we describe this hat right here? It's, it's a like classic a leather cowboy hat. Or like a leather hat. cowboy hat. It's got this color. It's like this green, light green. Uh, I would say peas. The same color as a peas, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, or green beans. That's yeah, a pretty cool hat. But anyway, so this, this idea of sublime, right? It's encountering something that is beyond understanding or comprehension or your ability to reason, or your ability to explain. And it's something that humans can't imitate. Um, it's like, to, to give you a sense of this, it's like trying to, to understand the concept of infinity, right? Try in your head to understand the concept of infinity. Try to see what that number is. You can't. You know, it just keeps on going and going and going and going. It's just larger than you, right? It's like trying to count all the stars 
Or it's like, it doesn't even have to be like that. It has to be like what Preston said when he was in the mountains of the Swiss in Switzerland. Or when you're watching a sunrise at the beach with your girlfriend, you just get this, this feeling that's just bigger than all of you. Um, you can't relate that feeling to anyone else. You can't. It's too complex. It's too complex. Um, but here's the cool thing about, and I don't think this is what you need to have a sublime experience, but this is what the romantics would say would be, would, would be the ingredients of a prototypical, a true sublime experience. Um, so there has to be contradictory emotional states. What that means is that you have to be experiencing pleasure and wonder, right? So you have to have experiencing pleasure and wonder, something that listens to those feelings, but at the same time, you have to be experiencing something that gives you terror. Or something that gives you a, a sense of awe. Almost an existential so, terror. An, ex an ex ex existential terror, an existential awe mixed with pleasure and wonder. And you put those together and that gives you an idea of the sublime. And for me, like the two experiences that I, that I have, and these are simple, sorry. But it's like watching sports, you know. When you watch sports and it's a close game, right? And it's like the championship. It's the last game of the season. This is something you've been rooting for since you were a kid. And now it's finally happened. Your team is in the championship. And the game is so close that, like if it's baseball or football, that every single yard matters or every single pitch matters. And there's just, it's, it's great because you're getting this rush that this is your team. You've got their jersey. You've been rooting for them. You know, you feel a part of the team. You feel like this is you that's there making this accomplishment. And you get this sense of, of pleasure from that. You get this sense of wonder from the whole world is watching this event. And, but there's also the terror because you could lose. The other team has the, the, their best hitter coming up and the bases are loaded. And you're a pitch away from losing all of it, from being embarrassed and from having to go to your friends who support the other team and, and, saying, and paying them the money that you lost at this bet. <laughs> or, 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 you know, or, or it didn't have to be that. Or it happens when you're playing the other team and that they have a player that's just so good that you're in awe of that player that's on the other team. Like, it transcends you even rooting for your own team. You're just like, man, that dude is amazing. So there are all of these factors to me, like, that come into watching a, a major sporting event where you do experience terror mixed with pleasure, where you do experience awe mixed with wonder. And that does give you this sort of sublime out-of-body experience. Um, so, yeah. So, that's... Anybody want to... Good? So, we're ready to get into lightning round? Mm -hmm. Lightning round! Yeah. Lightning round! So, we're pretty much southern discussion part. All right. So, right. so, what's the basic mechanism by which lightning strikes? Lightning rounds means like we're going to talk super fast. We're going to spread. Mm -hmm. We're going to make sure that everyone can hear us at home. Our news we're uh, one hour and 30 minutes into this. And I want you to answer this question. Has technology corrupted down so far more? You have two seconds to answer <laughs> Next question. Yes, no. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, no. Yes, no. You can't give yes, contradictory no. answers. <laughs> no, 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 no. Lightning round just means um, that it's it's question out. It's question. You answer. Next question. You answer. Next question. I answer. Or maybe not even that. Let's throw that away. That's a terrible idea. Well, I Sorry. mean, it is raining outside, so maybe a lightning round could have. Lightning to do with round. Lightning round just means that. Well, what if? What if one of us is Thor? I'm not Thor. Are you we're, we're Thor? already I'm Thor. not Thor. Are you so Thor? I'm Thor. <laughs> One of us isn't. We're I'm actually Thor. So basically, the concept of lightning means that we're not going to spend forever on these questions. Right? I'm my fastest. We don't know who I am. So <laughs> if you're going to answer these questions, make it a profound answer. But we're not going to spend 20 minutes on one question because there's a lot of them, right? So we got to get to them. Um, so the first question that I have, 
Uh, let me ask Preston, because I asked you this earlier, and you can obviously comment after him. Does intelligence restrain emotion? So there's idea that these really intellectual people who live their lives empirically or through a realistic sense, who really love to sort of cultivate their intellect, do you see that they are doing so at the expense of being in tune with their emotions? Like I think of computer science people or, uh, you know, or a sort of philosopher who's speaking monotone or, or, or you know, and then you, you contrast that with like an actor, right? Or someone who's really in tune with their emotions. Is it because, or does intelligence restrain emotion? Do you think that that is a phenomenon that exists? I would say not if you're talking about intelligence in general. Because all of the things that you mentioned, you know, the actor and the computer programmer, those are different types of intelligence. And, and, and one of the reasons why I, I would say that intelligence does not inherently restrain emotion, part of it is simply because of the fact that we, emotional intelligence is a thing. That we, you know, that, that intelligence actually can enhance our understanding of emotion in, in some instances. I wouldn't say there's anything inherently about intelligence. Especially I guess in the, EQ versus IQ. Yeah. The, the, only, the only instance where I would say intelligence could restrain intelligence is, or restrain emotion, is when you're talking about specific types of intelligence in specific situations. That, you know, it, it, like with your, your example of the computer programmer, that if you're in a situation where you're just completing a task and there's a very set goal and you have to use a very analytical form of intelligence in order to do that, sometimes you might suppress emotions um, and to get in, to avoid allowing them to get in the way. But if you're talking about intelligence in general, there's there's nothing well, about being the, the, there's nothing there's nothing about yes. being smarter so, or me, dumber that makes me more or less well, able to experience emotion. I did find online uh, some studies from like the CDC and the National Health Institute and whatnot <clears throat> that tie uh, intelligence positively with um, happiness like throughout your entire life. Like so your life is a lot more likely to be happy if you are smart, even controlling for economic factors. And the least happy people are people between 70 and 100 IQ. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, it, I think of like physicist, you know, like the one, the reason why he stands out is Neil deGrasse Tyson is because he's super emotional. He's got a high emotional intelligence. But I mean, the normal physicist, like if you ever watch a show with him and his other physicists, they're very dry. Burp, 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 burp. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not good they're, on camera. We don't they're they they're not good on camera, but you know, you just don't get the sense that they're very emotional or that they're in tune with their emotions. Uh, you know, mathematicians, basically, your what do you call that? Your STEM anything else? Your STEM professions, your scientific, your science, technology, engineering, math. I mean, there are a lot of smart I do see where the, because you know, I do <clears> see that you can neglect your your emotional life. Like if you're in this constant state of focus, like you're constantly reading nonfiction, or you know, because obviously, like you're not using your emotions. You're not, you know what I mean? You're not, um, you're using your reason more than you're using your emotions. <clears> like if you're, you're 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 talking to people in a logical sense, you're not talking to them in an emotional sense. And I think you can get bogged down in the pattern of just simply using logic and reason uh, and we're not using your emotions in the pattern. And a good demonstrate, a good illustration of this is a lot of really intelligent people have bad luck with women 
You know, like there's a lot of really super intelligent people and there's and when they get around women, there's this sort of awkwardness because they don't know how to calculate for women's feelings or they try to approach women being reasonable or you know being logical. Whereas I don't know how true that in is this, though. I mean, in this in this instance, this is very true. You can look it up. There's a lot of studies that wait, have been well, done. Are about you, impl- are you implying that women are not logical? No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. You're approaching it logically and it doesn't work. When you're in a social environment, you know, okay, so you look at this as reason. Okay, well if I have a really nice car and I have a lot of money and I smell nice and I have new clothes, she's gonna talk to me. But there's a guy out there that has nothing. It has no clothes, he's probably, probably not stinks, very smart. and he's probably not very smart at all, but he just knows how to have a good time. He knows how to elicit positive emotions from her, and that's going to be very important. He's almost likely to end up married or in a relationship, though, yeah. the guy who has this stuff because he's smart. Yeah. I think we see smart people are actually more likely to be in relationships with this perception of like the nerdy genius yeah. still controls people's perception because like, a lot of the smartest people are in business or the arts and things. They do really well with people. Like mm-hmm. you, if you, as long as you don't exclude it just to like computer science majors, like there are people with a lot of emotional intelligence who are also very otherwise intelligent. Yeah. There's, there's always there's always these exceptions. But I think but what you're talking about is more the exception yeah. than the rule. Uh, I don't know. I would like, disagree. I think, I think that, that's a, it is. I mean, it's it's not a stereotype. It's an induction. It's, it's inductive reason. I mean, I, I would actually, based, I would I wouldn't say data. that there's there's anything about intelligence that inherently makes it more or less likely to go one direction or another. That I, I definitely think that intelligence is something that can get in the well, way. Look, but to say that right. it does, or to say that intelligent people um, have just have a hard time with certain things that less intelligent people don't. I mean, that's a stretch. A best. good a good example yeah. of this is sort of okay. So you look at the Big Bang Theory. I know it's a show, but it can't but say it's, it's, it's a show that just purports those and stereotypes. It's, it's, okay, but it's but these stereotypes they're they're harmful, but they're there's there's I'm not saying they're accurate. I'm just saying there's a sense of truth to it. To say that they're completely but false what does is that also mean? not it's, true. It's not they're not completely false. Well, I would well, they they are, say they're, they're exaggerations so of they're, things that they're, do exactly. exist. That I wouldn't, so, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't yes. say that it's, it's objectively so true we, or a good reflection because of that exaggeration. But I, I do, I do understand what Jordan's saying in, in the you, sense that there's a, yeah. a grain of truth because basically what that show does is it takes characteristics that we do see in our society, but it just blows them out of proportion. And that blowing it out of proportion is why it's not a complete reflection of reality. I mean, you look at, like, and I know this is probably a bad area to get into, but screw it, I'm going to get into it. You look at, like, the models and, like, the really beautiful women in society. They're not getting with engineers. They're not getting with, unless you're Elon Musk. And okay, you're in Silicon Valley, that it's entirely yeah. inaccurate. But, but why, are the, why are those women with these guys? Is it because they're just really great guys? they're smart enough to have everything they want because yeah, they're smart enough I, to have a lot it's, of money. I, I think at that point, you're getting into a, a, a situation where they're with you for the money. You know, and but I don't think still, what I'm saying is the perception that people don't get women because they're intelligent is the exception. Not no, the it's role. not because it's not because they're not intelligent. It's because a lack of an emotional. Right. It's a lack of emotional intelligence. When you connect those two things, I think you're doing a disservice to people because mm-hmm. you're exaggerating how common. That I'm not is. pointing. I'm not pointing anybody out. I'm not saying that you're well, like. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not, that. I'm saying exactly that. You're saying that it's too common. You're, you're exaggerating yeah. how common it is by far. Okay, no, 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 no. That's not. It's not about. Smart. It's not about it being common. It's about is this a phenomenon that pervades society? It, it does this, not. It does this, I'm this, saying it's not. Does pervasive. this? Does this happen? So it doesn't happen at all. 
There's, very there, there's no cases of this. This is like in the well, one. What, what, I, think, I think what Ian's trying to say is that if something's pervasive, yeah. if this is sort of the defining characteristic of something, by default, it has to be common for yeah. it to be right. true. Right. Because if it's the exception, not the rule, then it's not pervasive. If it's the exception, not the rule, then mm. it's not something that just intrinsically is going to influence our experience in most circumstances. I think you find people with the lower right. IQs also have the lowest, lower EQs too. Like that's, that is what correlates. People who have lower IQs tend to have less emotional intelligence also. Uh, see, the, I think now that's the exception, not the rule. Because no, I mean, let's, can you get because if you're not, if, oh, if, if you're not using your intelligence, then what are you? What are you using? Are you uh, I don't have it. <laughs> I don't have it with here. I, let me use it on but, the table. What, what, what was it you were going to well, search we can, for? We can, this, we can look at this afterwards. No, we can we can run more than one app at the same time. It's still recording. EQ so, versus IQ EQ correlation. Um, sorry, everybody. We're fact checking right now. We we are we are asking the magic conch, aka Google, what to think about this. Okay, so let's see correlation between emotional intelligence and IQ about memory. Let's see memorykey.com. A study, February 2013, a study shows that IQ and conscientiousness significantly predict emotional intelligence and identifies shared brain areas that underlie this interdependence. Mm -hmm. By using brain scans from 152 Vietnam veterans with a variety of combat-related brain injuries, okay, researchers claimed to have mapped yeah, the, the, the neural uh, basis of... Yeah, yeah it, it, this, I, is, this is not... Like, I, we, I'm going back. I'm going back. We might want to find something that's like more further than the general population. Okay, so so what we did find did seem to show that there's a correlation. So you guys, so so, well, so let me let me let me backtrack. So you guys have never heard of this idea that there's a reason why the smart guy doesn't get the girl. Yeah, I've heard it before. It's a stereotype that socially awkward people use yes. to elevate themselves and feel better. Nobody's about using. Nobody's using. People, nobody's using. People say anything. I can't get girls because I'm too nobody's smart. Using it's this, nobody's using this to elevate <laughs> anyone. Anyway. No, I think. But I this think is realistically, a, people do right. say I can't get girls because I'm too smart for them. It's something right. that guys that's use the, defense it's, mechanism. It's not because they're too smart. It's just because they right. don't have. Well, I think people high think this. I think that right. That that's the difference. It's, a, it's an excuse guys use to make themselves feel better. It's not really accurate. There's no accuracy there. It's a stereotype. No, 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 but the, the accuracy is that it's not because they're too smart. It's because there's a lack of social intelligence. Right. The ones who really are smart usually also, I'm saying the ones who really are smart usually also have the emotional intelligence because yeah. those things go hand in hand. I think that, yeah, I think that there are people who, if you're truly, uh, like, people who are highly intelligent have a higher ceiling for emotional intelligence. I think there are a few awkward and a lot yeah. of assholes who like yeah, to exactly. call themselves smart. And, and, really and maybe it has to do with what you were talking about earlier, just because some of these, they're a little bit higher in the autistic spectrum, you know, well, and that's the that effect. If you don't understand women, how smart are you really? They're just other Yeah, people. but that's a different time. But also, autism is kind of a different thing, because it is true that autism is one of the things that can create that, that a lot of autistic people right. are very smart in one area, but could be Social average or potentially even very dumb in other areas. But the thing is, is that autistic people, that's kind of their own group, that their brain functions differently than non-autistic people. If you're talking about just society in general and you're lumping autistic people and non-autistic people together as, as one as one category, mm -hmm. that, that that's where this idea of different types of intelligence being a trade-off has a lot less merit. Right. Well, the idea is that in these STEM fields, that there are large portions of people people who are higher up on the autistic spectrum the, the in large these, portions in these fields. I think that's and also so, exaggerated. Yeah. It's not that many people who are actually on the spectrum. This is literally what you said earlier today. Not really. Is, you said that, I said, are these, why are these people like, 
like like they're really intelligent, but they can't handle themselves in social situations. Yeah, there's certainly some people like that. We're not talking about large portions. We're that's talking just about what, that's just it's, what it's talking like about. okay, so you're taking it you're taking the extremes. Either this is everybody or either this is nobody. No, no. It's you're the one taking the extremes here, President. I'm saying that it's really I'm literally saying right now I'm not talking about the extremes, and you keep on saying you're talking about the extremes. You can talk about the extremes even if you say you're not. What I'm saying is what you think is the norm is actually a, a fairly rare. I'm thing. not saying this is a norm. That you were saying you were saying it was pervasive. Are there are there are there like are there people that are on the autistic spectrum that are in STEM fields? There's a small number. Just like I, I, what, what would you say? I mean, the amount of people autistic. What, what, look what up percent? the amount of people what, who are autistic. I would say if you're what, talking, what, what, it's, it's going to be one or two. What, percent. So here's it, it depends. It depends if you're talking about absolutes or proportions, because the I, people being autistic in general is the exception, not the rule. So I think if you're talking about a high Proportion of, listen, listen, if, you're ta- if you're talking about a high proportion of autistic people being in STEM fields, yes, I have heard that before. That is true. But if you're talking about a high proportion of people in STEM fields being autistic, that's not necessarily true. Yes, there's a lot of autistic people in STEM fields, but because autistic people make such a small portion of the population that if you look at everybody who's in the STEM field, there's a very small portion of them who are actually going to end up being autistic. Mm-hmm. Even if a lot of people who are autistic end up being in them, that that's just not the norm, that most people in STEM fields are not going to be autistic. It's just every now and then you do find one who is mm-hmm. and that there are some notable examples of people who are autistic who have done very well in those, those fields. Most people with autism will never go to college even or seek any kind of higher employment. They well, will probably do something, but most people with autism just, like the fact is they don't do that. Well, I've heard that there's a lot of people with Asperger's who are in these STEM fields, which is a higher, you know, they hire, like it's by definition supposed to be a high IQ type of thing. So like that would be, you know, if you, if you look at What's that. What's a milder form of autism? Yes. And, that, and that's why autism is a spectrum because Asperger's is like one type yeah. and that, that, that autism can affect a lot of people. Right. And it can affect people in a lot of different ways depending uh, where on well, the autism it, spectrum anyway, they fall. This, this is, okay, so uh, I'm totally fine with abandoning this principle if you guys are putting it out there that the idea that there's a, there's a myth out there that nerds don't get the girl because it's not because they're not intelligent, but because they simply don't have that emotional awareness. Um, that that's not true it's at all, or it's, or it's, it's very, or it's largely a myth. I'm fine with it. That's that's cool. I don't have any. I don't have any beef, any beef. With it. Okay. Um, the next question. Any beef? Are we having steak? No. <laughs> uh, okay. So well, we covered that one. We're talking about veganism next time. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So I'll why bring, I'll bring some steak to the veganism discussion? In, in society, I'll eat it while we're talking about it. So why does Passion often trump reason. Well, why can a politician tap into people's passions and get more results than tapping into the statistics and the reasons about why things happen? Why do we like animals, man? We have chemicals in our brains, and you can work with those chemicals to produce results. They're powerful. That's the most empirical thing I've ever heard. Well, either I would say that it has to do with the fact that passion is linked with desire. That what can happen is that we want certain things to be true because it makes us feel comfortable or perhaps we have our own agendas or maybe it's both a lot of times it actually ends up being both between those two things and that what can happen is the emotional trump reason because it appeals to those desires and that it causes us to get excited about things and it ends up being just a much more powerful feeling the the challenge that reason falls into sometimes is that, and I'm not saying this is always the case, because there's plenty of instances where what's reasonable is also what we want, but reason can be difficult to deal with sometimes. 
beliefs. That reason can refute something that we want to believe, or it can it can paint a version of reality that we find inconvenient. Uh, whereas when you're talking about things from a very emotional perspective, when you're using passion, it gets people fired up. It, yeah. it creates, it causes them to take those desires and passions that they have and channel them into something. And it's not so much about whether they're right or wrong so much as it is, I feel this way and I like it and this makes me feel empowered as a person. Well, I think it has to do with the fact that the one is more closer to uh, being the catalyst for action. Right. Like one, if you're going to appeal to someone's reason and you can make them angry or you can make them very hopeful about something uh, or you can make them sort of disgust at something or make them have fear of something, then they're going to want to do whatever it is to avoid those feelings. Because I think that those feelings are a lot more close, closely tied to like your survival mechanisms, you know, like you need to survive. You have to do this. You better you know? hope that crowd That's, follows you rather yeah. than chases you. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, so uh, you're talking to the right crowd, you can get them, you can basically get them to do this by tapping into this survival mechanism through their uh, emotional intelligences. And that's going to work because it's, it's a quicker act. It's a quicker path to action. Now, obviously you can get people to do things through reason, but I was talking about this earlier pressing on the, uh, on the groomy. I don't know if you saw this, but like, if you're trying to get like the, these programs that try to get people to quit drugs and addiction and all that stuff. They almost have to always use passion and emotion over reason. Mm -hmm. You can't come into somebody and say, hey, look, you're losing your job. You're not making enough money. Uh, there's these chemicals in your drug. These chemicals have been, sh there's a study that shows that this chemical in meth is going to be linked to this disease in meth and you're going to get this disease. Therefore, you should stop meth. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. Right. Yeah. You have to well, find gonna, that. Well, what it is, I, I know what you mean because with drug addicts, that you have to appeal that desire to be better. That you have yeah. to appeal to that desire um, to to transcend their problems and recognize that they have the potential to be yeah. something a lot that? more like, how, than what a kind drug of experience you'll have with drug addicts. That's not a question that we should answer on this podcast. No. I mean, I just think. I mean, well, actually, I do have a little bit of experience with drug addicts, and that I've actually I haven't so much encountered sure. the part about. Um, the, the passion working, but I have encountered the part about the reason not working. So there's somebody I know um, who has struggled with addiction mm -hmm. and that I would tell her about all these different things about like, look, you know, that this is, this is ruining your life. Yeah. Like, you know, that there's, there's these other paths, like you don't have to be like this. And it didn't matter that she didn't care. That she right. just kind of yeah. wanted to stay in this this type of thing. Now, you know, we, we could get into all sorts of conjecture and, and speculation as to whether or not um, a more emotional approach actually would be more effective. But if you're looking at it in the reason side of things, that is, is, is definitely something that I have experienced and I have witnessed. That I would, I yeah. would tell her all the time, I'm like, look, you know, look, here's the problem. And I would explain to her, yeah. I'm like, this is not good. And like, like this, this individual I'm talking about, she has this problem where she would drive high all the time. And I would explain to her, it was like, not only is this very dangerous, you could kill somebody else or yourself, but even if you avoid loss of life, you can still get in big trouble for this. You could be arrested. You know, there's all sorts of criminal charges. It, she didn't care. Exactly. It, you know, she it's, didn't it's gonna, care. It's kind of brushed right off. Let's get back onto the romantic romanticism thing. Uh, I have one or two last questions that I want to ask. Um, is technology and is progress and is modernity Corrupting the morality of man. Yes. Look at the internet. <laughs> That's the first thing you see. Take the stage for yourself. 
We're corrupting what, what about what the I feel like I know what you're talking about, but what about the internet that is corrupting? Is it the dark web? I don't know. I would actually what do you, what do you call I just that? meant pornography. But what do you call that that part of the internet that's like you have to The dark web's the illegal Is that the dark web? The the deep yeah. web is the part that's the indexed by Google. The dark oh. web is the illegal part. Yeah. So like the deep web includes all like the banks have I'll be right back. I need to go do something real quick. Okay. But yeah, I, I do think we're being corrupted to an extent. Just by the fact that we have ac- everything, everything we've called a vice in, in the past, we now have a lot more access to. What what technologies do you think are particularly corrupting to me? I, I know communication. Like, I, would, I would throw TV in there. Communication in general, like just talking Calls. to each other. I think I think we're just we're little perverts inherently, just being able to talk to each other in private. Yeah. The webcam has done a lot to corrupt men. Yeah. I mean, yeah, bad, like pop entertainment, like TV, like fucking Cinemax. Uh, Your HBOs. I would say like weapons, because I mean now you can definitely. This is a like there's this theory that the further away that you get from somebody, it's called distance. The easier it is to kill them, right? Or the easier it is to harm somebody. If you well, press if you press a button here and it's going to harm somebody in oh from a psychological yeah, point of view, psychological yes. point of view. Like if you if you press a button here, it's going to harm somebody in Oklahoma. The chances of you pressing the button are going to be high versus like pressing the button and you seeing somebody in a chair and like it's going to send shockwaves to them and it's going to harm them. So guys, um, so the now we have weapons that are going to are sort of increase the distance. So now we have drones. So you can send a you drone. Uh, we're pressing this back. We we can. Um, or I mean, if, yeah, just let them get back. Um, so you have drones now, right? So you can send a drone to some Middle Eastern country and you can like wipe out whole populations and you can do this from a controller. Like you don't even have to look at them. And it's different It's different than the days where you used to have to take a sword and shove it in somebody's chest. You know, like you can look into their eyes while this is happening. So I think that that dehumanizes people and it makes it easier for these sort of atrocities to happen. And that, that does have an effect on like the morality of people. Uh, but Preston, we're going to wrap this up. So you got... Uh, one final thing about technology. How that- oh, what I was going to say about, yeah, about technology corrupting people. I would say I do not believe that technology is corrupting people. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the reason why I say that is because when you look at, like, there's there's certainly bad things that technology has allowed to spread. Like, I'm not denying that. Like, technology has been used for some negative things. But when we really think about that, those things are pre-existing technology, and the bad things that we see about technology are actually just extensions of that. So, for example, like, if we talk about, you know, what, what is it like? For example, child, you know, like 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 child pornography or something, like something really horrible like that. You know, that's something. Sure, it's spread online, but this, but pedophilia is something that has existed beforehand. It's not technology that's causing it. Technology is just a manifestation of it, and that people are using technology for a bad. Uh, for a bad end, but that that desire to do that, and that the evil behind it, and that that those those immoral behaviors that people engage in would exist with or without the technology, and the technology is nothing more than a medium through which it's expressed. So you don't think anime spreads pedophilia? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say. If if anything, I mean, if there's aspects of anime that you know maybe what anime are you watching? Was, I would, I, yeah, <laughs> like, I, I was about to say. What like, anime I, is this? For, like, the first I Dragon Ball I have not seen any anime that that definitively oh, spreads that. Oh, that old guy in Dragon Ball Z. That's true. Yeah. Creeping on all yeah. the people. You, you know yeah. what I'm talking about, Master Roshi. Yeah, but but even then, I feel that that still feeds into what I was saying. That's more of a manifestation that 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 those desires are not just going to go away because technology is gone or because there's no anime. Like you think about why do people create this kind of stuff? That's the real question you have to ask. It's when not you a problem. 
So, yeah, people creating so, us the problem. Okay, if if so nobody we, wanted to use technology for something bad, then technology would be only a good thing. But because there's people who want to use technology for bad things, technology is sometimes bad. Okay, so the last thing, we'll wrap it up. This is the final point that we got. We're going to be talking about our favorite concepts of romanticism. Ian, what's your favorite concept? No, I like the um, just the idea that the individual spirit is a thing. It's kind of refreshing. Refreshing. Well, I definitely agree with that, and I would also add on to it um, beauty. The, th the beauty and the sublime, like those are things that I really like about romanticism. Yeah, yeah, that that's something that can be observed and that can be experienced. Um, and then when I really think about romanticist thought and what, what I like about it, what I find appealing about it, that, 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 that's definitely what comes to mind. I like the, uh, the trend, like the in conjunction with reason and logic, you know, using intuition, instinct, and, uh, you know, the power that emotions can have, um, you know, that affect, affecting people and by making your own decisions. But that, just want to thank everybody who tuned in you know, tonight. <laughs> woo -woo. All, all, all two of y'all out there. Uh, but it was a great talk, guys. Thank you, Ian, for joining. Thank you, Preston, for taking the time out to have this podcast. All right. Sounds good. Thank you.